Okay, so if you are watching this show, and if you watch it regularly, you uh, you've probably come to the conclusion that higher ed has gotten a little gotten a little quirky, and I'm here to tell you that you're wrong. They're actually out of their minds. Now, does that mean everyone? No, of course not. It's of course not everyone in higher ed is out of its minds. But if you look at it as kind of a a broader institution in this country, there are a lot of problems. And a lot of those problems have become apparent to, I think, a number of people that were, let's just say, more skeptical or thought that conservatives were just being crazy. And then all of a sudden they saw a bunch of, I don't know what you might refer to it as, how about um, openly anti-Semitic behavior on campus? And they started to question, wait, wait a second, what's, what's actually going on? And I think what a lot of people have started to realize is that like in so many other things that, that have been going on in our country, the number of people that have pointed out something and said, this looks off, we're the ones that have been constantly told, you're blowing this out of proportion, that's not a big deal, it's an isolated incident, how does this affect you, what's the problem? And then when we said, no, 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 here's, here's the proof, this seems off, this seems like there's something wrong here, we constantly got gaslit. And now there's a bunch of people that probably don't always agree with us ideologically that are looking at the same thing going, oh, yeah, you're right. There's something wrong. Yes, there is. Now the question is, what do we do about it? But before we get to actually talking about what we can do about it, because that's the good news in this podcast, there is actually a lot of stuff that we can do, and we're going to go over that. But before we get there, we're going to actually go through the steps of properly diagnosing this problem. How did higher ed in America get like this? What, what were some of the catalysts? What is some of the evidence that we can all point to now and say, yeah, see that thing we told you was happening? It's happening, right? And it's been happening. And a lot of it's happening for the very reasons we told you it was happening. So this episode is going to be about equipping you with the evidence, with the facts, with the stats, with the receipts you need to be able to bring up some pretty important issues to people that are maybe now for the first time becoming a little bit more skeptical of what's going on and then talking about what we can actually do about it. All of them more coming up on this episode of Making the Argument, brought to you by Good Ranchers. Thank you so much for joining us. We've had some great conversations happening in our community chat over the last couple of weeks, and we would love for you to be able to take a part of that. If you haven't already, go down to the link in the description, join our community chat there. We'd love to get to know you and continue the conversation there after the episode. All right. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates, but other than that, a reasonably good guy. Not with us today is my beautiful bride, Tina. She was not able to make it in, so Queen of the Bees has some stuff she's got to do and, and can't be here, but she will be She will be back again soon. And now, back with us. Uh, speaking, speaking of everything wrong with higher ed, <laughs> <laughs> Master Hines has, has now officially received his, his master's degree and uh, is now back here with us. We're so proud of you. Yeah, I'm back in the U.S. I'm so jet lagged right now. So if I fall asleep in the middle of this podcast, it's not because it's a bad topic. Um, it feels like it's 6 p.m. for me. And I went like 22, 23 hours yesterday without sleeping on the Well, that the and he's back. probably upset <laughs> since we're going after all of his buddies in higher ed. You know, I will say, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm wearing my Wales uh, sweater that I bought in Cardiff. And you know what else I bought in Cardiff when I was over in the UK for a week? What's that? Your Christmas present. Oh, really? Here it is. Oh, I get oh. it now. I get oh, it now. Wow. It's an early Christmas here's, present. Here's Nick's Christmas present. Is it a coffee? <laughs> it is a Cardiff nice. Wales mug. 
There you Guys, go. thank you very much. I will, I will, I will drink from it proudly. I can't Hold wait on, show to the see the camera, Nick. Yeah, oh, I can't, yeah, I can't wait gonna... to see the Instagram reel. So, yeah. ha- Merry Christmas, Nick. Yeah. Describe this for audio listeners, Nick. Go, no, no, Christian needs to describe okay. it. It's just a red I mug. I don't speak Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's just a red mug, uh, a red mug that I bought in Cardiff, Wales, um, with the the um, Cardiff Castle on it and some of the city skyline. I bought that instead of buying something in England because I really liked Wales a yeah. lot when I visited. There's tons of history there and one of my favorite sites when i was over in the uk was actually carefully castle which is just built to the north of cardiff it was built in like the 1200s it got besieged multiple times it's kind of half in ruins so if you like history i highly recommend going to wales i mean i could we could do a whole podcast about what i visited but that's obviously not the topic today the big focus for today is actually the wales trip was my second favorite part of the trip my favorite part was my graduation and i saw i actually managed to tune in when I was leaving the train station in Birmingham, I I pulled up my phone when you guys were streaming live la- last week, and I saw you bring up my photo and everything. Yeah, and I was like chatting in the chat, walking through the streets about it. So, like, th- let me tell you, there's there's a bit of beauty with higher education, of course, which is why I went out there and got my master's, and I'm I'm. If, if you ever get to visit the campus of the University of Birmingham in the United Kingdom, it's gorgeous. The Great Hall is fantastic. There, and, and that's actually what makes it so sad of what's happened to higher education because there is a role for higher education to play. Yeah. And, and I would argue that it's currently not playing that role. In fact, it's kind of perverting that role. But I know that I've interrupted your introductions. You still have to introduce. Yeah, we still got to. We still got to do. We still got to. I know. My gosh. Like every time. You know what? We're, Christian is not going to be the last person we introduce on the show. I, that's how that's how we're gonna do it and then of course our producer of producers the good hamilton the one that doesn't like central banking I, how you doing I, i'm doing great i had to wait through all that but it's a pleasure to be here <laughs> wow well, it's good to, to be back, back. To, to that, Christian, to, congratulations congratulations i'm glad you had a good trip yeah but to, but to that point um that is i i think that's it's important that you say that because we need to get that right off the bat because there there is this idea of um that, that those of us on the right, those of us who are more conservative, who are more like, you know, liberty minded or whatnot, that we're, we are gradually becoming anti-intellectual. And, and there are certainly elements on, on either side of the political spectrum that you could classify as anti-intellectual, but it does seem to be more prominent on the right. And I think part of the reason for that is, is I think what you were about to articulate, and that's the idea that higher ed has an important role to play. And when it gets essentially co-opted, uh, by one side of the argument, well, then it leads to a great deal of mistrust from the other side. And, and we start to associate intellectualism or higher ed with the problem when in reality, it, no, it's not it, the institution or the concept of, of higher education is not the problem, right? That, that is, that is clearly not the issue. Being intellectual is not a problem, right? These, these are like so many other things we talk about. They are, they're effectively morally neutral, but they can be used for good or they can be used for ill. And right now, I think a, a lot of us on the right, I think understandably believe that that higher education has essentially been, um, I mean, not to sound overly hyperbolic, but weaponized against the ideas of, of Western culture, um, weaponized against the idea of what we would call, you know, free markets, property rights, um, and essentially co-opted by critical theory. Um, as kind of the, the the foundational philosophy, which informs a great deal of higher ed. And so the first thing that we're going to, the first thing I want to acknowledge is that, again, higher ed's not the enemy, but 
I would say that uh, the significant majority of higher ed has been captured by one ideology, and now they have turned once very, very proud institutions of debate and freedom of inquiry into places now which see themselves as having a very, very specific ideological mission. And part of that ideological mission is shutting down, shutting up, or you know, opposing anybody that disagrees with that ideological mission. And that ideological mission is not, again, freedom of inquiry and critical thinking. It's critical theory. And I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, um, and, and I will say that I, I, think, I think we're seeing a generational shift in this. But when I was growing up, I was told you have to get a college degree. If you want to be economically successful, if you want to set yourself up for uh, future success socially, then going to college is an important component of that, and, and you need to do it. Um, as early as possible. The, the idea that I would not get a, that I might not choose to get a degree is something that my parents probably would have seen as somewhat of a, a failure on their part. Yeah. Even though neither one of them had a degree. Well, let me ask you this, Nick, was their opinion on getting a degree correct at that time? I, so I think that's part of the question, right? And, and now I'm, I'm going to put this two ways, not necessarily, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, but getting to, when, when they were growing up, and, and this is what all the, the stats point to and whatnot, the idea was is that people that had a college degree um, generally earned more. Uh, they generally a, a appreciated better economic status and, and a better social status. And so it, it was a, a fairly easy heuristic, right? A fairly sure. easily mental shortcut to say, well, if people with college degrees generally earn more money, generally have more upward economic mobility, well, then obviously getting a college degree is an essential component to that. But, but what gave that position relevant is employers seeing a college degree as a sign of trustworthiness and uh, being able to, to do a job. I, I think it was the idea that you had demonstrated that you were able to accomplish something outside the supervision of your parents. Um, and they were, there was a certain degree of faith in the intellectual rigor sure, uh, sure. of our university system to, to the point where you would, you would, I commonly heard parents say, look, it doesn't even really matter what you to get a degree yeah, and just yeah. get a degree. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, a lot of kids took that to heart. And the university system also responded by creating a lot of degree programs that were economically worthless. Right. And so you, you have this combination taking place at the same point where the same students that have been told doesn't matter what degree you get, just get the degree, right? Doesn't, I mean, just spend the money, do what you need to do. That was happening at the, at a, a confluence of the federal government now pushing this idea of we're, right. we're going to make sure that we do federal loans to anybody that wants one so they can get a college degree. And at the same time, the university system said, well, we can attract more students by offering, you know, a, a bunch of degrees that, which may or may not be the most intellectually rigorous or, or economically sound at the same time that those institutions of higher education were also uh, adopting um, a much more ideological com- component to the sure. way they taught. So all of these happened at, at kind of at the same time. That's not to say that there, there weren't lead ups to a lot of it, but there was definitely a confluence at the same time where all these ideas kind of collided with one another. And we're, we're living in what I would classify as kind of the aftermath of what happens when all of those ideas come about. The institution has been completely captured at this point. Do yes. you guys actually remember? I cannot remember the episode title. This was maybe five or six months ago. We did an episode. We actually did two, but one was more in depth and we actually went through the paper. We went through in an episode where there was, this wasn't the central point, but one of the points in there was I showed you guys a paper that was written the year I was born, actually, in 1994. And it was a paper that I cited when I was writing one of my papers to get my master's degree. Yeah. And this paper 
was filled with critical theory, you know, jargon all throughout it. It was all about oppressive power structures. This one was a, particularly about gender. And so it was, you know, all about, you know, patriarchy and all of that type of stuff. And I was citing this paper, not because I necessarily agreed with the paper, obviously, but I was, I was trying to do my due diligence of explaining, here's how different historians have approached this topic. And as much as I disagree with it, that was one of the ways they were approaching it. And when I first ran into that paper, I brought up to you guys in this episode that we did that like, I was stunned when I found the date that this paper was published. I yeah. thought this was like, you know, 2018 or, or 2020. Right. And instead it was 1994. Yeah. It was 30 years ago or almost 30 years ago when this paper was published. And to Nick's point that he was talking about earlier about all these things converging at the same time, what, what happened from, at least from my point of view, and I think that Nick would agree with this is that higher education for probably the past century or so had been moving in a in a somewhat negative direction on multiple different fronts but it all accelerated post 60s well i, I think and then by the time the 90s came along yeah it became apparent for those in higher education what was going on but the general public didn't necessarily understand the problem until well I, I would argue some members of the general public didn't understand the problem until what two months ago yeah i i think i think when you look at what higher ed started off as the united states when you look at harvard when you look at princeton the, these are really started off as in, in many respects theological seminaries that that was that wasn't the only thing that they might have studied but there was there was a strong component of that um uva university of virginia that jefferson started um was actually one of the first universities in the United States that, that really put a strong emphasis on not having like a, a seminary component. Um, and, and again, it's not that Jefferson was, was hostile to religion necessarily, but he, he wanted a university that wasn't um, largely built around the, the sem, seminary concept. So this idea that, that you know, religion or, or conservatism is somehow antithetical to education doesn't really play out when you actually look at the history of the university system. What, what I think started to change, and, and people point to different, um, different aspects of this, um, they, some of them point to Darwin, um, some point to Hume. Um, I, I think you start to see a more significant change with respect to the university system becoming more openly hostile to what we would consider to be traditional um, American values around faith, free markets, property rights, limited government. You start to see that in the progressive era. Uh, so in the early 20th century, I mean, I think the, I believe Woodrow Wilson was the first university president who became president of the United States. He very much believed that the the constitution was standing in the way of him setting up the sort of uh, bureaucratic state that he wanted. He believed that society would be better run with subject matter experts with the sort of college degrees that he had um, organizing society. Uh, interestingly enough, he was also a completely unrepentant racist. Um, <laughs> one of the first truly, you could, you could argue that Teddy Roosevelt was the first progressive uh, president, but Woodrow Wilson is, is, you know, I think fits that role a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit nice, more nicely. And, and he, and nicely, I meant he fits better within the definition, but, but actively advocated for this idea that what, what we needed was a massive bureaucratic state. He was, he was a big believer in the whole idea of international organizations. That's where you got the league of nations started in, which was kind of the precursor to the United Nations. Um, but the progressive era, I think really, really began to, it, it was popular within the university system and it started to challenge certain fundamental beliefs that I, th I think uh, you would have considered to be culturally dominant in the United States at that time. But I, I tend to agree. I think the 1960s kind of really broke 
uh, the educational system. And I, and I think that's for two reasons. And it's interesting because whenever you bring up the 1960s, the left always says, oh, you got a problem. Oh, of course, it's a conservative. You got a problem with the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement is not what I'm I'm complaining about here. I, I actually- It's a global thing too. It wasn't just yeah, in the US. It, wasn't it happened just in, the in US. European universities as well. Well, the the main fight, uh, well, there was a couple things that happened. Obviously, the, the New Deal and the Roosevelt administration, that did a lot to, to question- um, again, what the traditional role of government was within our lives, because uh, it was Hoover, which started to break it down initially, but Hoover still believed in the constraints of the Constitution. FDR was far more willing to, to throw that out. And FDR was also very, very fascinated with what was going on in fascist Italy at the time. And anybody that wants to pretend like that's revisionist history, go look at Hugh Johnson, who was actually in, in charge of running uh, the National Recovery Act. And how he would give out tracks of the corporate state, which was a fascist, which was essentially a quasi-fascist track, um, you know, I, I believe written by Italian fascists. So there, there was there was this there was this belief within the progressive era that it was going to be wise management of the economy through government, you know, um, control that was going to create greater you know greater equity within society. <laughs> Um, but you know what, what What I find interesting is that I think there's actually somewhat of a break, not a hard break, but the the academic oriented, you know, eggheads of the early 20th century is, I think, a completely different beast than what we currently have roaming the halls of academia today, because the university at large is not concerned with necessarily how do we reorient the economy on a more corporatist level. They're more oriented towards how do we remake mankind how, well, like, like like dei initiatives and 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 everything that we call wokeism actually speaks very little about the economy overtly it's a lot more about things like oppressive power structures well and, yeah but i think that i think that's a key component of the that's a key component of the marxist narrative it was also a key component of the fascist narrative and I think what needs to be understand about that is that when you look at people like Wilson, when you look at people like FDR, when you look at people like John Dewey, um, I'm, I'm not saying these people were fascist in the Italian sense or anything like that. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is they all consider themselves to be progressives and they all sowed seeds in the early 20th century with respect to how we were supposed to view the role of government within our lives, the role of education within our lives, the role of bureaucracy within our lives. Um, they Again, they, they thought that the constraints put on the federal government by the Constitution, this is why you get the 16th and 17th amendments to the Constitution during the progressive era where now all of a sudden the federal government can tax you individually, which led to a massive increase in, in federal influence uh, within the states. You see uh, the creation of the Federal Reserve and now centralized banking within the United States, which also heavily contributed to, you, you see moving away from the gold standards and, and limitations on individual governments being able to you know print money. Like all of these things that happened during the progressive era. And I don't think you can separate that from things that then later on happened in the sixties. I think there was, I think they're connected. I don't think they're necessarily, I don't think they, I don't think they line up as, okay, it's this, then this, then this. I think these set certain parameters. And then when the 1960s happened and you had a, a huge countercultural backlash, and again, I'm not talking about the civil rights movement. I'm talking about the sexual revolution. I'm talking about, um, 
a, a lot more sympathy toward Marxism or critical theory, or that you look at the Port Huron statement. It's all, you can all see it right there. This, this idea of power structures, right? That's why we keep referring back to critical theory and the Frankfurt school is because whenever you, whenever you hear people defining society as the oppressed and the oppressors, and we have to consolidate all the people that have been oppressed into an active political organization so that we can seize power and then seize the means of production and then, you know, seize what we need in order to, you know, free the oppressed. I'm sorry. You see a lot of that, that gets its ideological ties from critical theory and, and Marxism. Um, and so I, I think the sixties w- was the first time we saw this, um, unashamed break within the university system, because even within FDR, even with Woodrow Wilson, even though they might've been, you know, pushing back against the constitution or, you know, pushing back against certain protections of the constitution had, had put in place for the separation of powers for, they still claim to be doing it for like nationalistic patriotic reasons. The sixties was the first time I think you saw this major departure within the university system where now, yeah, we want to do these things, but it isn't for patriotic reasons. It's because the United States government is in, is an evil, you know, patriarchal construction and an oppressive force within the world. And it's our job to dismantle those institutions, which have been responsible for that oppression. Now, keep in mind, this was fodder for a lot of universities in the 1960s. Not all of them, but a lot of universities in the 1960s. That doesn't mean the American culture was ready to go along with it, right? The American culture still looked at the Soviet Union as as an existential threat, as the communists as an existential threat. And so there was actually a lot of cultural backlash to what was going on within the university systems. You, You had... I think it was in Chicago where you had small shop owners that were giving out free lunches to construction workers because the construction workers were beating up hippie anti-war protesters, right? So it's important to understand that the cultural revolution that was taking place within the university system didn't catch on within the United States as a whole right away. And this, I want to prove this point. I want to bring up this, this article right here. This is from arrowmagazine.com. And, and here's what it says. It goes, the leftward tilt of college professors used to be more static than it is today. Between 1969 and 1998, now keep in mind, I think it's interesting that they start this statistic in 1969 rather than 1960 or 1950, because I think what you would see is a big shift in the 60s, and then it, it remains static for a while. Because 1969 and 1998, self-identified liberals consistently made up between 40 and 45% of faculty in American colleges and universities, but they did not waver much from this range. While these totals outnumbered conservatives and moderates, all three groups were relatively stable in size. In fact, several academic studies published between the 1970s and 1990s pointed to this stable pattern as evidence that long-running conservative grievances about faculty bias were overblown. Now, I want to point something out here real quick that is very important about understanding statistics and the way that sometimes magazines and journalists will manipulate statistics. The first question you should ever ask when you see this is why did they start counting in 1969? Why then? Why not 1950? Why not 1940? Why not 1930? Why did they do that? Now it could be that that's just the data they wanted to go with, right? It could be fairly benign, or it could be that they're trying to claim that this is the, well, this has just been ridiculous. Here's what, and again, this is something I need to look up, so I'm not making this as an absolute claim right now, but I'm willing to bet that if you would have started this in 1950, you would have seen a significant shift to the left between 50 and 69, and then you would have seen it stabilize. Why would you have seen it stabilize? I think in part because a lot of the university protests that we saw were not actually beneficial for the left politically. 
Because when you start to look at election results in 69, 70, 71, what do you find? Well, you find McGovern, you find, and McGovern got crushed by Richard Nixon. Crushed. McGovern, who was a Democratic candidate for president, actually came out and said he would crawl on his hands and knees to North Vietnam for peace. That might, have, that might have sounded really good on college campuses. That did not play well with the American public because, again, there was still this underlying patriotic. As, as much as people might have been frustrated with the Vietnam War, as much as they might have been concerned about you know, other government policy, they did not want to hear one of their presidents go off on this, oh, I'll crawl on my hands and knees for peace. So it's important to understand that I, I think that there was a strategic pullback in some cases of people understanding that, hey, we're trying to bring about the revolution, man, and the American people aren't having it. All right. They go on to say, then something changed. Starting in the mid-1990s, the number of college professors who self-identified as conservatives or even moderates began to rapidly decline. In 1998, moderates made up 37% of the academy and conservatives made up 18%. In the most recent survey from 2013, moderates and conservatives dropped to 27 and 12% respectively. Meanwhile, self-identified liberals exploded in number. They sat at 45% in 1998 and have grown to 60% in the most recent survey. That's a shift of over 15 percentage points away from conservatives and moderates and towards self-identified liberals. What I noticed is that most recent survey is 10 years old. Yeah. So imagine what it is today. I, I, I like, well, we're going to get to that too. The, the numbers are so laughably skewed at this point yeah. that I remember I saw a poll, um, of college professors on, on Twitter. Sorry, X I'm going to, I'm going to keep making that mistake. Anyway, I saw this poll about self-identified, you know, political ideology. Yeah. By um, by academic field, right? Yes. So you know, like the hard sciences, the humanities, you know, physics, economics, history, you know, anthropology, sociology, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> there were some fields, I, I believe it was like sociology and anthropology or something like that, where there were zero identified conservatives. The ratio in many other places was heavily skewed. Like even yeah. even the most equal. The, the the least academically polarized one was five to one in favor of the left. Like once you got further down the list and you got mostly into the humanities and these were, these were like the hard sciences. Yeah. They, they were either the hard sciences or they were almost the hard sciences. So like economics, physics, you know, engineering, yeah. biology, stuff like that. A little where bit it was, heavy in math. Where it was like five to one, six to one, seven to one liberals to conservatives. Once you got into the humanities, like once you got past history, history was like the last one where it was like like 15 to 1 for yeah. the left. Again, 15 to 1. But once you got into like the, you know, pure humanities, again, like sociology and stuff like that, you were talking a ratio of over 200 to 1 yeah. for for self-identified liberals versus self-identified conservatives. Well, and, and this goes on if you, if so we've scrolled down a little bit farther in the same article and it says, but why has this shift occurred after several decades of stability? Uh, by turning to other measures, we may catch a glimpse of the answer. It has to do with faculty composition as well as acute leftward bias in specific academic disciplines. So again, this is this is ten years old. We're doing this because we're not we're actually not trying to cook the books for our own argument. We're trying to show that they were talking about this ten years ago, and it's only gotten worse since then. We're going to prove it. As a recent article by political scientist Sam uh, Abrams documented, some disciplines skew substantially further to the left than academia as a whole. While roughly sixty percent of all professors self-identify 
identify as liberals. That number tops 80% among English professors. History, political science, fine arts, and the other humanities and social sciences are all substantially more liberal than the academy as a whole. They have also shifted further left with the overall trends seen in the chart above. So it's important to understand that, yes, if you're going for an engineering degree, if you're going for something heavy in, in mathematics, chances are it's far more likely that your professors are going to be overwhelmingly left-wing and that you will actually encounter some professors which might actually be right-wing. What's important to understand is that in humanities, not only has it grown overall more liberal, but it's actually grown overall more far-left liberal, right? To the point where we, we can't even say, I, I don't even like using the term liberal, it's leftist. And, and I have some experience with this because back in 2013, I was, I was still finishing up my degree. I think it was 2012, 2015. And because I did my degree in, in phases while I was in the military and when I got out of the military, I experienced things on a lot of different college campuses, right? Or whether it be online or actually on campus. And, and here's what I noticed about Northern Virginia Community College compared to some of the other uh, courses I went to. The, the three classes where I had professors who were obviously liberal and some of them were honest about it, but they were obviously liberal and they obviously tried to skew the conversation toward a, a positive outlook toward leftist ideas. We're not like economics classes, right? They, they weren't, they, they weren't, you know, my math classes. It, it was often in like humanities classes, it was English classes. Like I, I remember getting, we were, we were in an English literature class and we had the Communist Manifesto on our reading list. Now, immediately following the Communist Manifesto, were we going to read, oh, I don't know, Ludwig von Mises' Human Action? Were we going to read Frederick Hayek's Road to Serfdom? Or here's a better one, if we're talking about English literature, were we going to read, I don't know, Adam, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations? No, nothing like that. In fact, everything that we were given to read focused on a, on a left-wing explanation of history or communication. We were given things like, you know, uh, you know Derrida's deconstructionism. We were given um, marks for the Communist Manifesto. So right off the bat, you see within this English literature class a heavy push to expose people to the ideas of Marxism and critical theory, right? As well as like things like deconstructionism and postmodernism. Now, what I found interesting is that I obviously knew a little something about these things. And so when we would get in debates within the classroom, I actually had a really good time. I had a really good time explaining you know, the problems with, with Marxism. Uh, I had a good time explaining the problems of deconstructionism. In fact, there was these, this funny episode with the college professor where we're reading this idea where the book we're reading says that essentially one of the deconstructionist ideas that, that goes in with postmodernism is there's no such thing as like these meta narratives, right? There's no objective truth. There's no objective reality. And deconstructionism is this idea that when you are reading something, the author is attempting to impose their viewpoint on you. Now the, the reasonable application of that is, well, obviously if an author wrote something, they're attempting to influence the way you think about something in a particular direction, but then we can use objective reality and we can use critical thinking to determine whether or not we agree. But they took it this, again, the deconstructionists often took it up into this realm where it's like, well, no, no, the, you know, Western society is all based off of these power structures, which are designed to help the oppressor at the expense of the oppressed. And so whenever you read this stuff that essentially it's just an attempt to, to manipulate you and you can't trust it. And I remember looking at the professor, I said, okay, does that theory apply to this book that we're reading right now as well? Is, is the person that wrote those words attempting to manipulate, manipulate me into a particular way of thinking? And he goes, well, yeah, that, that is, that is a, a good question. I said, well, no, it's the only question that we have to answer because if their theory is true, we can stop reading this right now because it's just a form of manipulation, right? And we can all get A's for not reading it. 
Well, clearly that's not what they wanted. But again, the professor wasn't anticipating any pushback from any of the students because this wasn't a philosophy class. This wasn't a class where we were delving into the concepts of critical thinking or postmodernism. This was an English literature class. And so the books that we were given to read created an impression in the minds of students that this is just the way to think about these things because we weren't given any books to read, which had a counter perspective. And so I'm going to point out that I think one of the problems that we have within academia right now, within higher ed, it is not simply that it's become more left-wing, that it's become extremely left-wing. It's become heavily influenced by a particular category of leftist ideology. And they're putting it into a bunch of higher ed courses where none of the students are showing up adequately prepared to be able to push back against the narrative they're getting. And I think that's being done on purpose. I think it's also very, very convenient that when you look at a, when you look at a modern degree, you can certainly make the argument that part of what getting a liberal arts degree is about is giving you a, a wide scope of knowledge so that you're making a well-rounded you know, uh, individual who's capable of critical thinking and, and processing information correctly. But I do find it interesting that if you're, if you're getting a degree in English, you're probably not going to take a ton of math courses. But if you're getting a degree in something along engineering, you still have to take courses like this as part of your general ed. So somehow, somehow, the, the areas which have become the most consumed with leftist ideology are the areas that no matter what class you take, you got to take these ones. You have to take these ones. I don't, I don't think that's by accident. And so, look, that, that gives you kind of a, a once over the world of, of where we were at, where were we at with respect to how universities started in the United States. I think our, our expectations of universities is that we do expect to see a, a wide array of opinions and ideas, but it was usually... It was usually with the understanding that things like objective reality, objective truth, critical thinking, the scientific method, the laws of logic, that these things all are going to be taught within the university system so that when, when we are reviewing various ideas, we can actually come to reasonable conclusions about what corresponds with reality. But if the dominant narrative within the humanities is this idea of postmodernism, deconstructionism, power structures... Marxist ideology, critical theory. Well, then now when I come and I present a, an article, when I, when I present a critical analysis of what my professor tells me and I use the laws of logic in order to, you know, as, essentially defeat a particular line of reasoning or let's just say point out logical fallacies associated with a particular line of reasoning. Now that professor doesn't come and look at me and go, ah, good job. Good job. You're thinking critically. Now that professor looks at me and goes, you're a bigot and a racist and you utilizing the laws of logic or you utilizing the scientific method as opposed to somebody else's lived experience because they're an oppressor and you're part of a privileged class. You using those things is actually evidence of the very power structures we're trying to dismantle here. And so now my social status, my academic status, maybe my future economic possibilities, all those things are now diminished if I actually use the very tools that we were supposed to use or that we thought we were supposed to use in order to come to reasonable and rational decisions, reasonable and rational conclusions about reality. Because if it goes against the narrative, if it goes against critical ideology, critical theory ideology, well, then now all of a sudden you're a bad guy and you answering the question or you 
um, you suggesting that there might be a different perspective is merely just evidence of your white privilege. Or if you're a minority, it's evidence of the fact that you have now internalized the racism within our systemically racist society. And, and you have to be freed from that. And you being overly dependent on things like critical thought, the scientific method, the laws of logic. See, that's evidence that you've been consumed by this. And now, and now we're going to liberate you from those ideas, those, those meta narratives, and we're going to replace it with this. That's, that's pretty dangerous. That's pretty dangerous. And we see this all the time when student, when we, when we say we're being gaslit, it's because you are being gaslit and, and the gaslit is, is not a, is not a bug. It is a feature of the argumentation that a lot of our students are being confronted with. So the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to ask the question, okay, but, but how bad is it? Like, how bad is it really? Because for decades, for decades, these ideas are not new. Christian, Christian brought this up earlier that some of the things he was reading was in the 90s and the things that he was reading in the 90s were from stuff people wrote in the 60s. And the stuff that people wrote in the 60s might have been from stuff that people wrote in the 20s. So this has been going on for a while, right? And, and American society hasn't collapsed, right? We're, we're, all not, we're, not, we're not sitting here standing in, in bread lines while you know, George Orwell's 1984 you know, it plays out before us. So how bad is it really? Like, aren't conservatives just, just overblowing this a, a little bit? But before we get to that, and I know this is not a great segue, but we got we to get to it. You we know what you should have said? You should have said, but I'll tell you what's not bad. Good ranchers. Oh, okay. Yeah, what's not bad. Why? Because good <laughs> is right in the title. <laughs> no, we do, we, do, we, we do want to thank Good Ranchers, obviously, for the support of this show and tell you that you can support this show and Good Ranchers and yourself by using promo code Nick. Go to GoodRanchers.com, promo code Nick. And if you sign up for one of the subscriptions, right, you're going to get a free, I think it's a $99 ham. Yep. Right. And, I, and I, again, I can't emphasize this enough. Not all hams are created equal. If you go to the store and you're like, well, I can get a ham for 20 bucks. Yeah. It's going to be crap compared to this. I'm just, I'm telling you right now, when you have had a really, really good quality American raised ham like this, it is going to change your entire perspective, right? So if you are wondering, what do I do for Christmas dinner? I, I, yeah, I like the steak. I like the wild caught seafood. I love to wrap everything in bacon. Well, now you have an opportunity, you sign up for one of these subscriptions, you can get one of these $99 hams for free as a part of your subscription. So use promo code Nick, you're gonna get you're gonna get a discount, you're gonna get free shipping, plus you're also gonna have the opportunity to get this ham, all right? And that's not something that's generally available in communist countries. So as we talk about the rest of this and the, the desire to turn us into a communist nation, you think communist nations can just go out and get good ranchers right now? No, it's not a thing. So just another reason to pay attention to what we're talking about and fight for your right to be able to get really, really good meat. Yep. Right. All right. So let's jump into um, how bad is it right now? Well, the first thing I want to go over, and this uh, on a practical level, right? We've talked a lot about the ideological piece, and we're gonna we're gonna talk some more about that. I want to talk about how absurd it is, how absurd it is that anybody that's concerned about this, or I shouldn't say anybody, a lot of the people that are concerned about what's going on in higher ed will now turn around and take out a second mortgage in order to send their kids to one of these universities. Because after all, right, that's the way that you attain greater social status. That's the way that you attain greater you know, economic possibilities. Let's look at what has been going on with tuition. So we got this article up here. This is from bestcolleges.com. College tuition costs over time. The average cost of college tuition in the U.S. for undergraduate students has more than tripled 
multiplying by 3.15 times over the last 58 years, according to data from the National Center for Education Statistics. It rose from 4,336 in 1963 to 13,777 in in 2020. Now you're probably thinking, well, yeah, Nick, but inflation. Nope. That's accounting for inflation. All right. So, so what does that, what does that essentially mean? It's like, well, they accounted for all the inflation in there. Right. And it's still increased threefold. So what needs to be understood here. And, and again, this is average across the board. You need to take, remember something, remember something. When we're talking about the number of universities that we had in the United States back in 1973, right? We're going back 58 years. We had far fewer universities. There was no online universities, right? So what essentially happened is is, as more money became available for people to go to college and as more people became convinced that they needed to go to college, there were more universities that actually stood up in order to meet that demand in order to provide for more competitive pricing. And even with that, the price has gone up exponentially, especially especially at, at universities like Harvard, Yale, Princeton, UVA, right? Prices have gone up exponentially. Let, let's go and break this down just a little bit. By uh, the 1981 and 1982 academic year, tuition costs rose again have continued to rise every year since. Between 2000 and 2021, an average tuition and fees have jumped by 69% from $8,082 to $13,677 per year. In just the 10 years between 2010 and 2020, tuition and fees rose by 20% from $11,397 to $13,677. Uh, and if you scroll down here for the audience that actually shows a pretty good graph. And this is showing uh, the changes from 1963 to 2020. Now, here's what's interesting is that a lot of these, a lot of the fees and a lot of this, this increase in costs really started to, to go into overdrive starting in the 80s. Uh, the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s, you just see this exponential increase in, in the price of tuition. Um, now, let's go, let's go to the next one because I, I want to talk a little bit about... Um, yeah, the next article here. And this talks about some of the, the culprits for why do we have rise, uh, rising costs. Now, a lot of the universities, and I, and look, for just so everyone knows, I actually serve as the subcommittee chairman for the subcommittee on higher education within the Virginia House of Delegates, right? So this is something that I kind of regularly have to study. I end up talking to a lot of the representatives from the universities, which are lobbying for different bills or for different budget amendments. And here here's what I think very is, is very, very frustrating about this. Go ahead and... Um, uh, go up just a little bit. Okay. Um, as college costs continue their decades-long climb, pushing U.S. student loan debt to nearly $1.8 trillion and counting, rising administrative costs are likely to contribute to higher costs for students. The central mission of higher education is teaching, but in recent years, administration has enlarged as a share of institutional spending. Some observers and researchers who promote greater financial transparency and accountability in higher education are concerned that growth in professional non-teaching positions is generally outstripping faculty hiring even as a student enrollment declines. One of the things to understand is that a lot of our most prominent universities, the reason why they're prominent is not necessarily because the quality of the education they provide in the classroom, but rather the quality of research or getting published within academia, right? A lot of that actually goes toward increasing the prestige of a particular university. This is why you have some schools where you might not see the professor a whole lot. And what you do is you get taught by, by assistants or, or teacher's aides. In higher, this actually comes from... Um, a uh, economist and professor. 
In higher ed, it takes more workers to educate a given number of students today than it did a generation or even two generations ago, says Richard Vedder, an economist and distinguished professor of economics emeritus at Ohio University. That's the opposite of what you see in other fields and industries. This is an important thing to bring out, right? Because the universities are constantly saying, we need more administrators. We need more people to provide for things like mental health or student well-being or student programs or student outreach or uh, DEI is, is a big one, right? Diverse, uh, diversity, uh, equity and inclusion. We have to have all this. And what this economics professor is pointing out is that that is unlike pretty much anywhere else you see in industry or the market, right? So the, the general trend over time is, is that the more technological advancement you get within a field, the less people you need to do, the less people you need to actually perform the work. Uh, an excellent example of this is agriculture, right? When, when the United States was, you know, just five to 10 million people, roughly 70% of the population was in some way, shape, or form involved in agriculture in order to just feed the population. Well, now we're a nation of 330 million people. I think it's less than 3% of the American labor forces involved in agriculture. And we not only feed ourselves, but we feed a good portion of the world as well. We're, we're the, I think we're the number one exporter of agricultural products in the world, right? That number two is, is the Netherlands, right? like a tiny country in, in Northern Europe. And, and that's because of the, the tools that are used, the technology that's used, the, the advancements with respect to agricultural practices. What that has all produced is a much larger output per individual labor involved in agriculture. And you, again, you see this across the board in just about every industry. As technology improves, individual laborers are able to do more with the capital that they have that when again that capital could be a tractor for a farmer it could be a computer screen that a mathematician is using whatever it is they're able to they're able to scale more because of the the use of this technology and this capital equipment and yet in academia the opposite is happening right they're hiring more and more administrative staff and the question is why why are they doing this and are we actually getting a payoff for them doing this because it is 100% contributing to costs, not just within higher ed. This is also significantly contributing to costs within the public school system as well. Elementary, high school, the, the number of assistant principals and administrators and, and additional staff, right? There, there seems to be this trend in education, which doesn't exist anywhere in the marketplace, to increase the number of people you need teaching roughly the same amount of students, that's the other thing to keep in mind. It's it's not as if the number of students has just increased exponentially and, and the, the rate of, of faculty and administrators hasn't kept up. It has kept up. It's just that they're hiring more administrators, not the same degree of faculty. I have a theory as to why that's happening. And Please. it's kind of twofold. One is we effectively turned higher education into a necessity at least for a while, that's starting to go away now. That's actually absolutely starting to go away. In the wake of the Hamas attacks, for example, you've seen like major law firms and and corporations and you know hedge funds and stuff like that come out and say like, okay, well, you know, if this is the mindset of the faculty and students at Harvard, you know, pro Hamas from the river to the sea, then we just won't hire Harvard grads anymore. And so you're seeing you're seeing a, a huge, huge pendulum swing back in the other direction, which is higher education is now worthless. But 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the opposite was the case where it was viewed as this is a necessity now. It, it wasn't 
you know, you, if you wanted to succeed in the real world, you didn't, you know, a, a, a high school degree was not enough anymore. You needed to get a college degree. And so the first half of the reason why I think this is happening is we turned higher education into a necessity. It, it was basically required for you to have a college well, degree to enter certain aspects of of the real world, especially if you wanted to get certain privileged jobs. Well, and let's let's be let's be honest too. A, a big one of the biggest organizations that pushed this was not the private sector, although they did right to some degree. It was the public sector. It was the government. If you're if you're not permitted to practice law or you're not permitted to practice certain uh, occupations unless you have a license and that license requires a college degree from a you know approved government approved institution. Well, then, yeah, what the government has essentially done is it's given higher ed a favored status within the marketplace. And that leads me to the the second reason why. And these are kind of interlocking things. So the first off is, is that through, I mean, it, through the government, but I would also argue through elements of the private sector, especially some of these other institutions that, that we've called the Leviathan. So, you know, Hollywood, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, a lot of those places prioritize, we're only going to hire if you have a college degree. Yeah. And so if you wanted to enter some of these very privileged positions, powerful positions that paid well, a lot of these white collar positions in America, you needed a college degree. So we, we made it a necessity for you to get the degree. Now, the counter argument could be, okay, Christian. But there's plenty of things in the world that are necessities. Food is a necessity, to use your agricultural example. Why haven't you seen an explosion of administrators within food processing or food distribution? And I would say, well, the reason why is because unlike academia, food is a physical, tangible asset. It's entirely different from academia in that respect. And therefore, the market incentives that are baked into food production are actually very different than academia because there's there's two things that, that drive food production in, in this direction where we actually now need fewer and fewer people in order to produce more and more food. One is the consumer and the other one is the industry itself. Mm -hmm. So the industry itself has a built-in incentive to actually automate as much as possible and increase production as much as possible. Yes. And the consumer drives prices down by demanding cheaper and cheaper food because that's again, it's, it's capitalism at play basically. And the reason we've seen an explosion in population and the reason we've seen an explosion in technological growth is because food prices have become cheaper. If you go back, remember when we did the Roman empire episode, yeah. I mean, the average person in Rome was spending more than half of their income on just food. Yeah. And that's not the case now. And so I, I think that there's a different incentive structure in some other industries. I'm using agriculture as just an sure. example, but that applies to almost anything else is that you know, tangible assets like my laptop in front of me. The price of this has gone down massively. 30 years ago, you needed to be making six figures at minimum yeah. in order to afford a laptop. And now anybody can have one. The difference with academia is not only did we make it necessary, but unlike all the other things out there that you could argue were necessary, such as food, there is no incentive structure to make costs go down. There's plenty of incentive structures within the marketplace to make food costs go down. So I think that that's been one of the things that have led to, we're talking about the ridiculousness within academia right now, right? Well, no, right now we're talking about the or, cost. So, sorry, the, 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 the astronomical cost, I yeah. think, is there's so many perverse incentives within the system that have 
led to the explosion in cost over the last what 30 or 40 years yeah well and, and go go to the next uh, go to the next article here because I want to talk about what I think is one of the most significant reasons for that and that's student loan inflation so in in 2006 the total federal student loan balance was 480 billion or 27.2 percent of the current balance between 20 uh, 2006 and 2023 the total federal student loan debt balance increased 267.1 percent which is an annual rate of 15.7 percent or a quarterly rate of three point eight two percent from 2010 quarter one to 2020 quarter one the quarterly rate of increase declined 91 uh, percent in the last decade the total student loan debt balance has increased an average quarterly rate of 1.3 um here's what's here's what people need to understand about federalized federalization of student loans again the the overall and, and this is the part this is the part where i think you really do see cronyism at play within the federal government so, but, but again, you have other ideas that are emerging. So when I was growing up, I was always told when I was in high school, Nick, you got to get a college degree. It doesn't even matter what you get in. You got to get a college degree. And I think most students my age were, were told that on some level or culturally that was just kind of an accepted idea. And part of that was because again, academic institutions still had a good reputation for delivering an, an academically rigorous education. And regardless of Regardless of the degree you got, it signified to an employer that you could work hard, that you could achieve things academically, that you could think critically, that you could problem solve, and that you would manage to accomplish something that was intellectually rigorous apart from you know living with your parents or whatnot. A lot, for a lot of people, it's the first time they're kind of out on their own and, and accomplishing this. So all of those things served as indicators to potential employers. But then, again, to Christian's point, there was also a lot of movement by the government over the you know uh, long run to essentially legally require you to get a degree if you wanted to operate in certain fields. Because, because here's the question. Theoretically, could you, could you practice elements of medicine without going to higher education? Yeah, you could. But you, you'll get in trouble for it. You'll be arrested. Because right? legally, you're not permitted to. And so the, the question is, is that if the government has now said, hey, you have to go to these institutions of higher education in order to get the proper credentials to even be legally allowed to get money to provide certain services, we don't care how good you can do it. If you don't have this credential, you are not legally permitted to enter into the marketplace and actually engage in voluntary exchanges with willing customers, right? That's a pretty major advantage for academia, isn't it? If they're the one place that you can go in order to get these credentials, well, that gives you a pretty significant economic advantage. So right off the bat, it's not as if, oh, well, you got to go to college to get this because it's the only way to attain the proper information and experience to be able to provide these services, right? That's not the reality in the real world. That's the reality because the government has legally made it so. Now, you might argue, well, Nick, you know, we don't want a bunch of people out there performing heart surgery without the appropriate credentials. Yeah, I agree. But what I would, but what I'm going to tell you is that there's a number of mechanisms that we could use in order to get to that within the marketplace that don't require the government saying, "Nope, if you didn't do what we as the government say you need to do in order to get this particular particular credential, then you can't do it. You're legally not permitted to." And, and let's let's take off the extreme of heart surgeon for a moment. How about plumber? I mean, yeah, you could do a lot of damage if, if you get the plumbing wrong, but it's, it's honestly the only way to, to go through this process to, to get the legal permission from the government. Now, again, reasonable people can disagree. The only thing I'm pointing out right now is, is that the government handed a major market advantage to institutions of higher education. That's one. Two, 
So they created the conditions where the where these particular universities that had this this privileged status were necessary. And then what they did was they fueled the loans. So the idea was is that well if people have a degree they make more. Unfortunately they didn't do a lot of they didn't do a lot of analysis and research into well wait a second is it also true that certain people that get into college do so because they have certain study habits or they perform well in certain academic settings? The attitude was just, no, 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 everybody, everybody can do this as long as we just get them in. Now, I want to point out two problems with this reasoning. One, we know that not everybody performs the, well, the same way in an intellectual academic setting. Now, the person that you force into that setting might do poorly there, whereas if you provided a different setting where they were doing something more of a, a hands-on apprenticeship method, they might actually thrive. But if you force them into this set, this, uh, all of a sudden they don't do as well. And we also see this in the way that universities accept students, right? What are they largely accepted of? Your GPA, SAT scores. Okay, so once again, you have a you have a, a school system, a public school system, which is very, very geared towards standardized testing as the mechanism for determining whether or not you're even going to be allowed into the fields that the degree plans provide for. Once again, a pretty significant advantage to higher education. And so the idea was, is, well, how do we make higher education more accessible for people that right now maybe can't afford it or don't have the grades to be able to get into it? Well, easy. We lower the standards. We lower the academic standards for getting in. And we don't, we don't trade them out for other standards, which might be heavily relevant toward a particular field that they want to study for. We just, we just look at demographics across the board. And we ask ourselves, okay, which demographics are, are not getting into these universities as much as others? Okay, great. We're going to now essentially mandate that, that certain numbers need to get in, or you're going to be potentially investigated, or there's going to be social stigma associated with it. And then we're going to provide federal loans for it. Now, the problem that we have with federalization of, of college loans is that the federal government is not handing out the federal government's money. The federal government is handing out your money in the form of tax dollars. And, and politicians, as we have now seen for decades, don't get rewarded for carefully managing your money. They get rewarded just for handing it out as quickly as they possibly can. The more people taking federal handouts, the more likely the people taking those handouts are going to vote for the politicians that continue to give them the handouts. So there was a natural incentive. This is, this is the part where you get a little bit devious, right? There was a natural incentive for universities to set themselves up as the institutions which could provide the credentials. So what did they do? Did they just sit on the sidelines and one day government decided, hey, higher education, we're going to give you all these economic advantages in the marketplace where if people don't utilize your services, then, then they can't even break into certain fields that are also just so happen to be some of the most profitable and, and lucrative within the society. No, academia actively argued and lobbied for them to have those privileged positions. And then academia actively argued and said, well, yeah, but the problem, the reason why people can't get in is because it's so expensive to be able to provide this education and training. And the only way that we're going to be able to do it is if the government heavily subsidizes higher education. And so they come down and they argue for heavy government subsidization of education. And then it was, well, that's still not enough money. We need even more money. And so the way we're going to do that now is now we need federal loans for students to be able to afford college because we took all the government money and, and we didn't lower tuition and we built more buildings. We hired more people. We hired more administrative staff. We looked at whatever was politically, you know, uh, beneficial for us and we hired more of that. 
And then we started creating college courses, which may or may not be that beneficial economically to the student, but we get paid whether they get a job or not. And so what happens? Well, you have a bunch of 18-year-olds signing up college loans that, oh, by the way, never go away. And now they're on the hook. And what did they do? Well, they got into a good university, just like we, we told them that they needed to. And while they were in that university, they got a healthy dose of leftist ideology, regardless of the course they took or regardless of the classes they took, because the professor, the professorial staff and the administrative staff is overwhelmingly left wing. And then what happened? Well, well, they got out with their degree in journalism and, and lo and behold, they can't pay back the 40, 50, 60, 70, $80,000 in college loan debt that they have at what is it like 6.5% interest? Oh, it might be higher than that now. I think it, 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 it obviously varies with interest rates, but that's what we're talking about. And then, so what is, wait, wait, so, so let me get this straight. Higher ed lobbied to be the clearinghouse for all these credentials that you need to get. And, and by the way, they continue for more. They want more licensure, not less. They, they lobbied for the people to be the ability to, to hand out, essentially basically be certified for that licensure or for the, the necessary credentials to get your licensure. Then they lobbied for money from the government in order to build up these institutions of higher learning. Then they lobbied the government to hand out loans to a bunch of like 18 year olds. Now they're going back and they're lobbying for student loan forgiveness. Now think about this for a second. Think about the perverse incentive structure here. So my institution, my company, oh, but it's a, it's a not-for-profit, so it's okay. My company is higher education. Right, but it's it's not for profit, right? Public owner, public you know partnership or whatever it is. Lobbies the government give itself special academic advantage. Lobbies itself to give its uh, special um, economic advantage, academic and economic advantage. Then it lobbies in order to get students to get easy to easy to acquire loans in order to attend it. And then when those students graduate with a degree that is so economically worthless that they can't actually pay back the loan, that same institution goes back and says, Hey, you should forgive the loan, which is code for you should force all the people that either already paid off their loans or never went to our institution for this degree in the first place. You should force them to pay the loans because the college has already got its cut. You, you think that university is going and lobbying to say, Hey, okay, all the students that took degrees that we've now determined are just not very economically viable, um, you know, or, or took courses, which are just absurd, which we're going to get to a list of that prison. You know what? Hey, that's on us as the university. We're, we're going to pay back that student loan, or we're going to forgive that loan, which is to say that we will eat the cost for it. You think any of those universities are doing that? No, no. They want you to eat the cost of it because after all, they're representatives of higher education. This, this is, this is critical. This is critical to our, our civilization and to our economy to have more people go through their institutions. And when those people can't pay back the loans because of the degrees they received are not economically viable, well then you should be on the hook for that. And if you disagree with that, it must be because you're greedy or you're mean, or you're just not as educated as they are. Yeah. That's the sort of arrogance that we're seeing right here. We also should talk about the culture that higher education has created in that they have fostered this idea and culture that if you haven't gone to a public university or gotten a college degree that you are lesser than. Oh, absolutely. Because 
people who don't have a degree but are surrounded by people that do, they naturally feel like they are less than or potentially less intelligent. And that's absolutely not the case in a lot of circumstances. But the higher education system has fostered that idea as well. Oh, absolutely. There's a strong elitist mentality for yes. sure. And yes. I mean, you and, know, and they, Soul, and, they, and they foster that beyond their walls because if you went to their university, they have a sung for alumni and donations. Oh, and, yeah. And the, There's a lot and of pride. The camaraderie. And pride. Oh, I went to this school. and yeah. Although that, that's coming back to haunt them in some ways because, again, like, you know, Bill Ackman and stuff like that are are like pulling donations from these universities because they refuse to condemn like openly genocidal rhetoric. Well, let's get, let's get Jews. to that. Can, can I, Although we haven't gotten to that yet. Yeah. Can I real quick, I want to tell a brief story. I went to a college prep high school in North Carolina, which was essentially built to prepare students for college. They told the students in ninth grade that if you go here, colleges look at your graduation from this school very highly and you'll be able to yep. get into schools that are more prestigious. Well, that didn't work out for me, but anyway, <laughs> you know, Everybody at the school of the graduating class, 98% were going to college right after graduation. And they included folks that were going into two-year universities in that number as well. But the folks that did go to the two-year universities, they always felt like they were lesser than because they were not going to a four-year school. Yeah. And I look back and I feel bad for those folks in the, in the moment that they felt bad because they arguably made the better decision than a lot of us by going to a two-year school and figuring out what it, they wanted to do and getting work experience at the same time and that two-year university first and then going to finish the second yeah. two years at a four-year university worked out very well for them. Yeah. So let's go to the next uh, article here because we, we, wanted to, we wanted to first address the issues with respect to... Um, cost and the nature of why it has gone up so significantly. Um, because this is not just, this is not just, well, market forces at play. This is not any of that. Uh, this is the university giving themselves and lobbying for and being given by the government, very, very special position within the marketplace and within our legal system, like within code. Right. And, and now they, they proceed to go back and, and always ask for more money and then the moment you the, the moment you ask them for the actual results, and all of a sudden there's there's problems. And and I, I've had universities that actually do have a good track record of of making sure that when their students leave, they get a good degree and they get a good job. I, I've talked to, and I always say like, oh, good, so you're doing a great job. Yes, wonderful. Then you don't need you don't need my constituents' tax dollars then. <laughs> well, well, no, we 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 need that for, for no no no. If you're providing an excellent service to where the students who who go to your institution who are paying to go to your institution receive a quality degree and then and then leave and get a good job, why do you continue to need my tax dollars? Why do, why do you need my constituents' tax dollars? Why do you need the tax dollars of somebody who never went to your institution? Why? And it's always because, well, because we're a positive force within the Commonwealth. Okay, well, we'll see. All right, so now we're going to get into the, the political, right? We're going to talk about some of the stats, and, and we, we mentioned this up front, but I, w I just want to hammer this, this point home. Um, so this is by, again, Samuel Abrams. He's one of the guys that, that's researched this a lot. He's done a lot of studies. He considers himself to be a little bit right of center, so I'll just I'll let you know right off the bat. That's where, that's where he looks. He goes, one mix, misconception about college life today is that faculty on campuses are monolithically progressive. The description comes closer to being true about college administrators, but a new survey about the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, FIRE, of almost 1,500 professors at four-year U.S. colleges and universities reveals that while faculty tend to lean the left, ideological diversity still exists. 
50% of professors identify as liberal, 17% as moderate, and 26% as conservative. Now, here's the one thing I want to say on this. I, I'm, I'm going to be honest here, and I, and I haven't looked at this uh, the study behind on, on fire. What I do think is interesting is that we go through phases where people are more likely to identify as conservative or more likely to identify as liberal or more likely to identify as moderate. What you will notice is that if you were to look at the general population and you were to line it up with the university system, what you would find is not, not, a, not a complete 180, but what you would find is that there are more people that identify as conservative than as, as liberal within the general population. There's a lot of people that describe themselves as, as moderate or maybe unaffiliated if you're talking about political partisanship. But when you're saying that over, they say 50%, but when you say over 50%, because that's, that's more like what it is, and, and you're saying that twice as many professors identify as liberal as identify as conservative within, the, within academia, that's massive. That's massive. It doesn't even come close to reflecting what the general sentiment is within the population. What I find interesting is that liberals are always telling us that in order to achieve proper equity, well, then we need to have equal representation. Well, apparently that doesn't play out within our, our academic uh, uh, universities. So again, according to FIRE, it was 50% of the professors identify as liberal, 17% as moderate, and 26% as conservative. Let's go to the next article here. All right, now... We went into Harvard. So now we're not talking about, you know, just universities in general. Because, yeah, if, if you're adding a Grove City College in there or if you're adding a Hillsdale in there, if you're adding a Liberty in there, you're going to get a far larger number of conservative professors. But then when we go to a place like Harvard, more than 80% of surveyed Harvard faculty identify as liberal. That does not mean that 20% identified as conservative. No, no, no. 80% identified as either liberal or very liberal. So 37.43% very liberal, 45.03% as liberal, 16.8% as moderate. It was only 1.46% identified as conservative or very conservative. Right, Le Less than 2%. Yeah, so the idea that you could go to Harvard, here's what this means. This means you could go through Har you go to Harvard and depending on what your, your course material is, you might never come into contact with a conservative professor. You might only come into contact with liberal or very liberal professors your entire academic career at Harvard. And the reason why this is important is because Harvard obviously has a disproportionately bigger impact on areas of law and medicine and politics than Grove City College. You know, this was this was one of the things that some of the the neo reactionary people tried to warn about like 15 years ago. Yeah. The argument from uh I, I, I can't cite it like directly, but so so I'm 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 more gonna summarize. But the the original argument from people like Yarvin from like what, like 2007 or something like that was, you know, oh, people like Montesquieu and stuff like that thought that they were geniuses when they came up with the concept of separation of powers. But if you have a status, which is a higher, uh, you know, a, a university system like Harvard, yeah. considered like the greatest university in the entire world, basically, they're, they're tied with like Oxford or something like that for that distinction, right? If you have a place that the elites would want to send their children to, the people who would naturally go into things like business or politics, yeah. right? They would send their kids to these universities because there's a, a level of prestige attached to it. Well, 
you know, he says something like, you know, well, pray tell, dear Montesquieu, how on earth could you enforce separation of powers if the judges and the executives and the legislators yeah. are all sending their kids to the same place to be to to get their education? Really, their indoctrination. Yeah. And this is why I came up with the concept of the cathedral, because academia is one pillar of that. The other one being the media. Yeah. And there's something to be said about that, that, well, OK, how on earth? <laughs> If you think about it, it's actually kind of funny. How on earth did the sociology department of a university tucked away in the middle of Massachusetts conquer the entire Western world yeah. in terms of, of the modern culture that we live in? In reality, most of the culture that we live in is, is dictated by the thought process of most of these professors, these very liberal professors at Harvard. Right. We've asked the question before, how on earth does the faculty at Harvard and the board of directors at Disney and the writers of the New York Times all believe in the same stuff? Well, in part, because the people who write for major media or work for major media, the people who serve on the board of major corporations, these are prestigious positions within society. These are all parts of major institutions. They all attended the same schools. Yeah. And, it, and all the same schools are teaching all the same stuff and having a, a monolithic ideology that dominates it. You just went through the graph here. You are more likely to, to attend class after class after class taught by a very liberal, not even liberal, yeah. very liberal professor than you are even a moderate yeah. professor. Yeah. Well, it's, it's at, at Harvard, you're, you're about, I mean, you're, I mean, look, just looking at the numbers right there, you're about 30 times more likely to have a very liberal professor than you are a conservative one. 30 times more likely. Yeah, that's not that's, that's not 30% more likely, no. 30 times yeah. more likely. Yeah, 25 to 30 times more likely. Um, let's look at the next uh, next one because I think this is uh, an important part of this as well. And this has to do with the uh, freedom of expression. So this was that, uh, that by uh, thefire.org. And they said the the largest it was the largest ever free speech survey. College student ranks top uh, campuses expression. Said self expression. Fully sixty percent of students reported feeling that they could not express an opinion because of how students, a professor, or their administration would respond. This number is highest among strong Republicans, seventy three percent, and lowest among strong Democrats, fifty two percent. Black students are most likely to report an instance where they censored themselves. Just fifteen percent of students reported feeling very comfortable publicly disagreeing with a professor about a controversial topic. Only 11% of female students reported this compared to 19% of male students. That's because of the over-feminization yeah. of, of academia. Yeah, scroll down here a little bit. Uh, opposing viewpoints. Students reported an alarming willingness to shut down certain speakers. 87% of students reported that Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders should be allowed to share his views on campus, but only 69% said the same for President Donald Trump and 78% for former President Joe Biden. Students identifying as Republican or Independent were more tolerant of speakers than Democratic students. 71% of strong Republicans support Biden coming to campus compared to 49% of strong uh, Democrats reporting the same for Trump. This is also important. And um, we were, I was at in a conference, gosh, I think it was two years ago now um, where, where we were talking about this and we were talking about the, the problem within higher ed and that the issue has gotten to the point where it's not just that the that academia and whatnot is, is more liberal. They don't want to hear conservative speakers. Um, and, and it's amazing how they will set up certain rules for what student groups have to do in order to invite speakers to come. And, and you might think, okay, well, fine, Nick, they have to, they have to make sure that they have the right facility and they have to make sure that there's, there's security present and all these things if that's necessary. But what they've actually done is they've created a perverse incentive where if you invite a conservative to speak, well, now you need more security because they're controversial. 
But if I if if you bring someone very liberal that may have views that are controversial with respect to the general population, all of a sudden they don't need the extra security. They don't need the larger facility. They don't need all these things. And so they don't actually confer those additional costs onto the student group that is inviting the speaker. And, and we saw this at VCU in Virginia where Kristen Hawkins came to speak, a, a pro-life speaker, and it got so it got so loud and so violent that they shut down Kristen from being able to speak. And I remember calling up VCU and I said, hey, again, chair for higher education in the Virginia House of Delegates, why was this speaker not allowed to continue? Well, there was a dangerous situation. We completely performed within policy and we took care of it. Oh, good. So she's going to get to speak. Well, no, we, we had to shut it down. Oh, I see. So the policy that you have established is that if enough liberal students, if enough left-wing students get up, shout, yell, and threaten violence, you will shut down a conservative speaker. Is that the policy at VCU? No, it isn't. Okay, great. I would like to know when Kristen is going to be invited to come back and speak and be provided the proper security. I would also like to know what's going to happen to students that shut down discussions like this. And, and to VCU's credit, they did. They invited her back. They provided her with the proper security. Students that wanted to you know, engage in debate were welcome to do so. Students that wanted to be disruptive had to leave. Good. That's the way the policy should work. But unfortunately, too much on these super tolerant left-wing academic, uh, uh, left-wing campuses, conservative speakers are put at a, at a disadvantage where they are essentially disincentivized from attending campus. I had a group, I had a group tell me... I, Delegate Freitas, I know we invited you to come and speak, but it got out on social media that you were coming and we're now concerned for security and we're concerned that, that we will get in trouble with the university if you come and speak. So we have to cancel on you. This is like three days before I was supposed to speak there. And I had spoke on this campus several times, several times. But the, the head of that organization, the head of that group was so concerned that she was going to get in trouble with the administration if I came and there was a large crowd. Because again, what left-wing academia has, is demonstrating is that they will assist student activists in shutting you down if you're not showing up to say things that they want to hear or that they support. That's what this comes down to. All right, let's go ahead and look at the, um, I want to look at the next one here. Okay, this had to do, this was a National Review uh, article. Here's, okay, this is, this is what I think is important for people to understand too when they talk about how professors self, how they identify politically. Because it's one thing to say that, you know, 80% of faculty at Harvard, you know, surveyed identify as liberal. It's one thing to say, well, you know, if you look at across all, all across the world, only only 60% of, of college professors identify as liberal, right? We, we get that that's, you know, roughly two to three times what the general population identifies as, but we know what's the big deal. Democrats collect nearly all swing state college faculty contributions. All right, go ahead and scroll down here a little bit. Uh, while the people of these states are crucial to electoral college success, oh, excuse me, while the people of these states crucial to electoral college success are ideologically divided, the people teaching their college students are decidedly not. The outcome of the presidential election uh, vote is still in question. This is obviously back in November 1, 2020. But judging from their political donations, it's all over among college professors in swing states. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden has raised more than $9 million from faculty and administrators in these swing states for, or excuse me, raised $9 from faculty administrations in these states for every $1 raised by President Trump. Scroll down. Employees at the largest universities in Arizona, Florida, Ohio, Michigan, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, donated more than $2.2 million to Biden, while Trump collected only $219,000, according to Federal Election Commission data, who listed their employers. 
When the data are explained to all federal candidates, the disparity grows even larger. In swing states, faculty donated 11.2 million to Democratic federal candidates compared with 596,000 collected by Republicans. In other words, Democrat raised 95% of the funds collected from faculty members in America's most politically competitive states. Why is this important? Well, it's important for two reasons. One, it demonstrates that when we hear that, um, oh, there's you know, the 26% of, of college professors are, are conservative. Okay, maybe that's true. And maybe they're conservative and they just don't donate to political campaigns. But, but what we're finding is that when we look at the political donations, it's more like 90% to 10%, right? Not, not 60, 20, not, no, 90% to 10%. That's pretty significant. When, when we're actually looking at data where it's no longer dependent on someone being honest with you about what they believe or where they fall politically, when we actually look at political campaign donations, that's where we get a far greater disparity with respect to those faculty members which actually donate. And the other reason why it's important to bring out in swing states is because a lot of the states um, that are swing states that are also more liberal change their voting laws to allow for things like same-day voter registration. We actually have that in Virginia now. And you know what we found? In certain select districts, if you went and you checked the precincts at the college campuses, they had some of the highest percentages of same-day voter registration. So that's a student that's going to change their voter registration that day at the polls, right? Because they're all back for class during election years in swing states. They're going to change their voter registration that day at the polls and they're going to vote. Now, they might go back and change it again. And, and is that illegal? Yes. Do we have any sort of really good mechanism for making sure it doesn't happen? No, we don't. And they know we don't. Let's, let's look at the next one. This one has to do with uh, Penn State. 99.7% of political donations from Penn faculty went to Democrats from 2021 to 2022. So we're not, we're not talking about Trump, right? The Trump's out of the equation now. We're just talking about political donations from faculty. Now, again, if you were to look at the, the survey done by FIRE, you would say, okay, well, you know, over 50%, between 50 to 60% of college professors are, are, are liberal, you know, but you know, hey, that's that's not that's not a hundred percent. That's not eighty percent. That's not seventy percent. Again, when when we start looking at political donations from Penn, so again, let's be intellectually honest. A lot of people have political inclinations that don't donate to political candidates. But when you're when you're telling me that really, you know, on average, it's you know, okay, yeah, it's it's fifty percent liberal and and about twenty percent conservative, and then the rest is somewhere in between. But ninety nine point seven percent of the political donations in an off year election all go to Democrats. Well, now it's, it's a little bit harder to, to buy what you're selling me. Let's go ahead and look at the next article. Uh, teachers unions. How do the teachers unions do it? Because this is supposed to be the voice of our teachers, right? So when you look at the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers, these are the two largest teachers unions, and then you look up here, and we're looking at a graph right now, and this is top contributions from 2021 to 2022, and here's what you see. The National Education Association gave away $39,907,071 to political candidates and other organizations, so they're probably giving to like other like liberal groups, and but and it, and it categorizes it liberal groups versus Democrats. Well, look, it, it looks like they didn't really give much of anything to Republicans, right? Nothing to conservatives, but both of these unions, which together gave over fifty-five million dollars 
over $55 million for the 21 and 20 uh, and 02 cycle. Almost all of it, almost all of it went to Democrats and liberal groups. Now, why do I point this out? Because obviously teachers unions, right? That that's generally more associated with our public school system. The important thing to understand is when you look at the ever-growing cost of administrators within higher ed, with ever-growing cost of administrators within our public school system, keep in mind that if a bunch of teachers get a pay raise, that probably doesn't translate much into union dues for the teachers' unions. But if you add additional faculty, that's another dues-paying member. So they have an incentive to increase the number of people within our school system at every chance they get. And then what do they do? Well, they lobby the government. And, and keep in mind, when a union is law, when, when it is a public sector union, when it's a public sector union, keep in mind, it is unlike a private sector union. A private sector union is actually negotiating with the employers, right? They're, they're negotiating with the employers for things like salary. The employers have a natural inclination to try to keep costs low. The employees have a natural inclination to rise their salaries, wages, and benefits. And so they come together and they negotiate. Now, the employees also have an incentive to make sure that they don't negotiate in such a way that runs them out of business. And so they have to be careful on how much they negotiate for, because if it's going to hurt the bottom line so much that now the company they work for is no longer competitive within the marketplace, well, now they just negotiated themselves out of a job because they're going to go out of business. So they have to be careful. By the same token, the employers within the private sector have to be careful on what they do with respect to wages because if their labor force walks off the floor and they can't replace them, they're going to go out of business. That's the negotiating dynamic between employer and employee within the private sector. What is it within the public sector? Teachers Union is not negotiating with people who pay their salaries. They're not negotiating with taxpayers. They're negotiating with the politicians that they gave money to to get elected. And are the politicians spending their own money? No, they're spending taxpayer dollars. So if they get the pay raise of the teachers unions at the taxpayer expense, they're going to get more campaign donations to help them get reelected. The dynamic does not exist. The same dynamic does not exist within public sector employee unions. And that's not just for teachers it's across the board. But I wanted to show how this, how this works out. Teachers unions are not there to represent teachers. They're there to represent the union and their union members. All right, let's look at the um, next one here. Might have taken this one out. Um, Okay, this is another thing I, I wanted to point out too because this is also important. It's, a, it's scientists in the United States are more politically liberal than the general population. Now, this is something the left likes to use a lot as, as evidence that yes, the smart people are left-wing, that reality just has a left-wing bias. Well, in reality, if you take a look at what's going on here, when you say, okay, who is a scientist? Right, so obviously you have private sector scientists, but then you also have scientists largely associated with higher ed and academia. And so when people are arguing for more funding for scientific research and it's going to higher ed, what do you think it's doing? Do you think, do you think it's, do you think that higher ed is not manipulated with respect to where the source of their funding is coming from? Do, do you think the people conducting research in higher ed are, are not influenced by the source of where the money is coming from? And once again, you have this relationship where politicians give money to institutions of higher education under the guise of scientific research. 
Now, does legitimate scientific research take place at universities? Of course it does. But is that the only form of research that goes on at universities? I highly doubt it unless we're willing to claim that, oh no, it's just different with higher ed. Higher ed doesn't have any motivations with respect to how they get their funding or the sort of research that they do, which may determine whether or not they get more government funding. So do you see where there's also perverse incentives there as well? Well, now if you are using, once again, tax dollars to fund a lot of academic research and the institutions getting those, those funds know which side their bread is buttered on, do you think that might influence some of the results they come up with? Do you, do you think that might lead them to cherry picking data sets? When you have an academic institution where peer review is the highest level of, of academic integrity, but all of your peers agree with you, do you think that not causes some potential problems with respect to the quality of the scientific research and analysis that we're getting? It becomes what Tina likes to call a self-licking ice cream cone. Yeah. It's it's almost like, you know, well, the purpose of academia is to, you know, create a new generation of professors who will then teach the next generation of professors who will then teach the next generation of professors. And we're constantly going to be writing papers and then citing each other and creating this large voluminous bubble where everybody's counter citing each other and there's no ideological diversity or anything. And at the same time, we've also mandated that people go here effectively in order to enter some of these elite positions within other institutions yeah. within society. We've we've created so many perverse incentives through all of that that, quite frankly, when we look at the craziness that's happening within academia, we shouldn't at all be surprised. No. I, like I, I see people that that are like I don't understand what's happened with our universities. I understand perfectly what's happened with our universities. If anything, we should be asking the question of how did it take so long for us to get to this point? Yeah. Like why aren't we further down that? Well, track? I, I honestly, and, and again, I'm, I'm going to go back to this real quick, and then I'm, we're going to jump into the next part of this. But I, I honestly think it goes back in part to the fact that most of the the predominant political philosophy within academia, I believe, starting in the 1960s, was rooted in. Uh, an, af an affinity for Marxist explanations of the world. That doesn't mean that everyone was an authoritarian communist, right? It doesn't mean that every academic that liked Marx liked Stalin. And, and this is an important distinction to make because there's so many people that think, no, 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 I like democratic socialism. I want, us, I want you to have a vote. I want you to have a voice. I just think that we should be voting on, on this and we should be leaning more toward a socialist economy. That sounds nice enough until you realize that you don't have much of a voice if the government's the one that essentially controls the means of production, if the government's the one that essentially controls the means of education, if the government's the one that controls the means of healthcare provision. See, if the government controls those things, you don't have genuine choice. You just have choice on which political hacks and bureaucrats might be running the organizations that you're talking about or running the, the sectors of the economy that you're talking about. That's not genuine choice. Genuine choice is I hate your service. I'm going to a different service provider. When the government disproportionately controls all the provision of services, you don't have choice. Your only choice is to bitch about it or to vote someone else in. Until, of course, the people that have been voted in have decided, you know what? I don't really like not being voted in. I, I, really, don't, I really don't like these people assaulting our democracy with different opinions on the way that we should be running things. The only way we can save democracy is to deny those people the ability to interact with it because they're a threat to it. I, I do love the the only way we can preserve democracy is if we shut down our political yeah. opponents. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I I do think that 
there's something to be said about the difference between the the beast that we're facing today and some of the problems within academia, say like, you know, 60, 70, 80, even 100 years ago, because you were bringing this up at the very beginning of this episode and in our previous attempt to record this episode that, you know, the progressive movement of 100 years ago is actually in many respects very different than than the creature that we're dealing with today. Absolutely. The our, our ideological enemies of 100 years ago were more fixated on how do we how do we make the economy run better? They were they were I mean they they were really big into central planning to varying degrees, right? Everything from full-blown communism to corporatism under a fascist type structure to more progressivism under people like, you know, Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, but at the end of the day the the progressives of a hundred years ago, yes, they were a bit narcissistic in the sense that they thought, well, give us enough, you know, power and, and money and influence over the economy and we'll make things more efficient. Yeah. But they they did not operate under this idea that certain people are are evil or good based on their position on the oppressive power structure scale. And we need to actively discriminate against those that we identify as being oppressed or sorry, oppressors in the name of helping the oppressed. That is the, the mindset that exists now. Academia is not necessarily interested in the economics of things, even if it's influenced by Marxism, it is explicitly a cultural form of Marxism. It's not a classical economic form of Marxism. There's actually, it's not workers of the world unite. There's there's actually very few economically explicitly Marxist professors out there. There's a yeah. lot of professors that are heavily influenced by Marxism, but there's actually very few professors that would go out there and say that they're a classical Marxist in the sense that the only thing that matters is class warfare. Yeah. A lot of professors would actually say, no, the only thing that really matters is oppressive power structures which economics might play a role, but it's yeah. actually a relatively minor role because now we're going to divide people by race, skin color, sexuality, you know, gender, ethnicity, all of that type of well, stuff. The, yeah. The, I mean, it's, 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 an, it's smart in the way that again, in, in Gramsci, Gramsci explained this. He goes, we're not seeing communist revolutions in countries that are capitalist because essentially capitalism delivers the goods. If the whole idea was, is we want to improve, we want to improve the life of the worker. Well, the worker's life in capitalist countries is far superior to the worker's life in authoritarian countries or communist countries or socialist countries. And, and so it's not a good argument. That's what Gramsci was essentially saying. Because never forget that Marxism itself was not just an economic theory. It was much more of a comprehensive worldview, which simply said that economics was the, the primary factor of, of human existence and interaction. Whereas, it, but if you, if you look at what they were trying to achieve, it was the idea of the creation of the new socialist man. Yes, it might not work under these conditions, but it will work once we've created the new socialist man. Gramsci was just smart enough to see that, okay, if you don't change the other culturally shaping institutions within a society, you're never going to get to these socialist man that we all want to create. And so we have to take out those cultural institutions and we have to find a way to organize people around doing that. Now, I don't think Gramsci necessarily gave the best explanation for how to do it. He talked about the march through the institutions. But, uh, but I think as far as what was the mechanism, what was the mechanism you were going to use to march through the institutions? That's where I, I think um, the Frankfurt School um, really tapped into something. And that was the idea that, okay, as we look at, as we look at capitalist countries, what do we see? Well, okay. There's a certain degree of economic disparity that also exists in communist countries. And in fact, it's even worse, but we're going to ignore all that. But we do see, we do see problems with respect to race relations. 
we, we do see problems with respect to um, men and women and their position. And, and oh, by the way, you can't change race and you can't change your biology. That was, that was kind of the initial thought. But then all of a sudden the sexual identity component came into this and you see this not only on, on the, I would say the sexual perversion of people like Kinsey and, and what is it, Money, Dr. Money. Um, but you see that fitting perfectly within the whole postmodernist mindset of Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, 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 Derrida, you, you see all of that. So all of a sudden you have this merging where it's like, okay, the, the reason why I think some of the aspects of like trans and LGBTQ came late to some of this is because one, it's not inherent, right? There, there's, there's gay conservatives, but it was also this idea that, well, if you're a marginalized group, then you fall within our oppressor and oppressed model. And, and so, and this kind of goes to the next part that we're going to talk about, which is the whole idea of DEI because DEI is informed by critical theory. D DEI owes its, owes its foundations in critical theory so much so that I think it's impossible to separate the two. And, and so when you see, oh, we have a DEI program, diversity, equity, inclusion, you're thinking, well, what's wrong with diversity? What's wrong with equity? What's wrong with inclusion? Well, those, those terms, nothing necessarily in and of themselves until you learn that every single DEI program is rooted in a critical theory view of the world, oppressor, oppressed. So when they say diversity, do you think they mean, do you think the DEI boards on all these, these universities right now, do you think the DEI boards are just rushing around going, oh my gosh, we're overrepresented by liberals. We don't have equity with respect to ideology within our college campuses because the population in general is more like 38% conservative and the liberals are more like 27% conservative. So that should be accurately reflected within our administrative and faculty at the college universities. You think that's going on? You, you mean DAI is trying to achieve that kind of diversity, that try of that kind of equity? Do you think they're trying to be inclusive of, of ideologies and thoughts which better reflect the overall demographics within the United States? You think that's what DEI does? No. DEI is rooted. Every single one of them is rooted in a particular ideology and mindset. And it is the most extreme leftist ideology in 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 I mean, I'm sure you can find something even worse, but as far as popular renditions of leftist ideology, it's critical theory. So let, let's look at what they're doing. So uh, this actually comes from uh, Diversity University, DEI Bloat in the Academy. Uh, this is an article, July 27, 2021. This is by Jay Green. He goes, the promotion of diversity, equity, and inclusion on college campuses has become a central concern of higher education. However, high DEI staffing levels suggest that these programs are bloated relative to academic pursuits and do not contribute to reported student well-being on campus. The author's research suggests that large DEI bureaucracies appear to make little positive contribution to campus's climate. Rather than being an effective tool for welcoming students from different backgrounds, DEI personnel may be better understood as a signal of adherence to ideological, political, and activist goals. Goals. In light of these findings, state legislators and donors who fund these institutions may wish to examine DEI efforts more closely to ensure that university resources are used effectively. Here's what's so important about this. Remember I said before that a significant portion of university funding, especially public university funding for obvious reasons, is taxpayer supported. So it's it's not like it's not like tuition is is carrying the 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 vast majority of the funding for these universities. No, it's your tax dollars that have been taken coercively, or it's large endowments. Like to give you an idea, Harvard sits on I think somewhere around a forty five billion dollar endowment. Right, University of Virginia sits on I think around a ten billion dollar endowment. So it's not like they're hurting for cash. Scroll down here a little bit. 
Uh, promoting DEI has become a primary function of higher education with DEI staff making up an average of 3.4 positions for every 100 tenured faculty. But data shows that college's vast DEI bureaucracy has little relationship to student satisfaction with their college of their per or their personal experience with diversity. Um, and, and the reason why this is important, because the reason why we're told we need DEI is because one, it's going to, it's going to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion on college campuses. So theoretically with the rise of DEI, you would think you would see a rise of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You, you'd think that students experience from those that come from diverse backgrounds or those that might be minorities or those that the left claim comes from marginalized, you know, categories would be happier with their college experience. The more DEI was involved. Go to the next article. It's not coming up. Okay, here we go. Now, this comes from, uh, this is National Review, and it goes, what does all the DEI spending on campuses accomplish? So again, if the, if the argument for this DEI spending is that it's going to create a better student environment for everyone, but specifically for minority or marginalized students, here we go. So the article says, to signal their progressive virtues, college and university leaders have been, le uh, excuse me, uh, learning on diversity, inclusion, and equity administrators in recent years. Those administrators are supposed to make all the students feel welcome to dissolve nasty old stereotypes and to ensure equal success for everyone. Scroll down. Like so many other leftist nostrums, the DEI mania is the triumph of purportedly good intentions over reality. Having legions of DEI busybodies doesn't seem to improve things on campus unless creating make-work jobs for college grads counts. In today's Martin Center article, David Waugh of the American Institute for Economic Research looks at the effectiveness of DEI spending and finds it very questionable. In particular, he dives into a recent Heritage Foundation report by Jay Green and James Paul. That was the one we were reading. Green and Paul examined 65 representative universities across the U.S., finding that on average, each employed 45 people in DEI positions. That's 45 people, right? Go ahead and scroll down. Per university, on average. When what do they accomplish? One of the higher education fads in recent years is the Campus Climate Survey. Those surveys supposedly reveal how well students get along. So do schools that put more emphasis on DEI bureaucracy have better results? The authors find no such evidence. There appears to be little relationship between DEI staffing and the diversity climate on campus. In general, student reports on campus climate are no better and often worse, especially for minority students at universities with larger DEI staff levels. I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that DEI is commonly rooted in an ideology which seeks to tell minority students that they are the victims of an oppressive system which they can never overcome unless, of course, they join forces and engage in political action which will put the them in power and oust the oppressors. I mean, if you were going up in an academic setting, regardless of what, what school, whether that was your, your elementary school, your middle school, your high school, your university, if you're going up in an academic setting where you were constantly told that the people on campus who look different than you are, are oppressors by virtue of their skin color or their heterosexual status or whatever else, and that, that your goal was to team up with other oppressed people in order to overthrow those people, do you think that would, that, that would produce a better academic experience? especially in a setting where it seems to be so obviously untrue. It would just create a lot of hateful narcissists. Yeah. And, and that, that is what it's creating. It's, it's, you know, you, you said something earlier today, either I like earlier this morning and you were like, you know, there's, there's, there's going to be like another Holocaust. And, you know, I remember when you said that at the time, I was thinking, well, that sounds like a really big exaggeration. But then I started thinking about the the 
pernicious mindset that is manifesting itself within some of these universities and where it inherently leads to. And it hasn't yet led to another Holocaust, but it it, it has certainly led to genocidal level rhetoric directed at a small minority of people, that, in this case being Jewish people. But you know what? I would also argue that it's it's also being directed at at, at the majority as well, right? Because it's not just Jewish people that that it, it's Jewish people that you're seeing the most extreme version of this because of what's happening with Hamas right now in Gaza. But, you know, a lot of people only really started to wake up and notice this because of the the rhetoric that came out of academia in the last couple months or so related to the Israel-Palestine dispute. But for a decade now, I remember when I was in um, when I was in college myself, right? Like I, I remember sitting in a class. And hearing some of the rhetoric about things like, you know, whiteness or gender and thinking like, these people want to off me for being a white male. Yeah. And, you know, I, I may as well just, just, you know, go off myself because that's what I'm basically being told here. And quite frankly, I can only imagine how it's gotten in the, in the you know, seven or eight years since I graduated yeah. with my undergrad. It's, it's gotten far, far worse. I don't think people realize, and maybe they're only just starting to realize because they, they see this stuff, again, going on with, with the Palestine and Israel stuff. Like, people are looking at this and they're like, how on earth did this happen? Well, it's because you've created an incentive structure that inherently leads in that direction. If everything is black and white thinking, it's, a, it's about oppressive power structures, right? Like, inevitably, you're going to get to this point. Yeah. Well, let's. Um, I want to. I want to. I want to step into. So we've talked about the expense. We've talked about the politics. Now we're going to talk about the ridiculousness, right? So this is. <laughs> so we haven't even actually. I got to jump even, the gun here. We haven't even gotten. We haven't to the even dark gotten side to the yet. dark side. The dark side is coming right after this, and then we're gonna we're gonna jump right into. You know what can we do about it? But I, I want to talk about some of the most ridiculous things that we're seeing right now. Go ahead and click on the next article. All right, these are the this is from the universitybusiness.com most regretted college majors. Um, here are the top most regretted college majors based on the number of graduates who would choose a different major if they could do it all over. And oh gosh, here we go. We're getting, we're reaching our article limit. It was journalism, sociology, liberal arts and general studies, communications, education, marketing management and research, medical clinical assisting, political science and government. That's yours, right? Biology and English language and literature. And to give you an idea that every single one of these ones, a, a majority, 52% or higher, said that they regretted um, regretted the, the degrees that they actually yeah, I, took. Yeah, I am the 56% uh, yeah. <laughs> for political 80, 87% said they regretted journalism, 72% sociology, 72% liberal arts and general studies. You know, it's interesting, more and more, they're actually seeing, they're seeing more people say that they regret computer science as well, which seems ridiculous until you realize that if they just got a very generalized degree, it's not specialized enough to actually give them an advantage within the marketplace. And again, this goes into all of the bloat within a lot of these degrees. You're not paying, you weren't paying for all the stuff that you needed to be a really good biologist. You, you were paying for a whole host of stuff that had nothing to do with, with what you actually needed to be effective and marketable within that skill set. Now, again, you can make the argument, well, it's all part of a, a general educational experience. That works as long as that general educational experience still produces something that's market worthy. If it doesn't, then you're going to have to give up somewhere. And I got news for you. If all you're creating is really good activists who happen to know something about biology, that's going to make it even harder for them to get a degree or excuse me, harder for them to get a job. Let's look at the next one. This is the one, uh, man, I've been waiting to get this, to this one. This is the most 13 most ridiculous college courses. 
All right? So if you go to Skidmore College, what, what an appropriate name. You can, get a, you, you can take a class on the sociology of Miley Cyrus. College students can learn about the media frenzy surrounding Miley and her transformation into a public figure and musician. It is disheartening to know that there is a distinct possibility that students will be writing twerk in actual academic papers. Scroll down. What's another one? Uh, breaking down, breaking bad. That's S N U Y Buffalo. Yes. There is a college course about breaking bad. The course examines key plot points in the AMC drama and the features guest speakers from the drug enforcement administration and more. Number three, what if Harry Potter is real Appalachian state university? How can fantasy reshape how we look at history? Students in this class use historical imagination to look at the Harry Potter series, geography, real and imagined historical events in the novel and worldwide reactions to this famous book series. Number four, Demystifying the Hipster, Tufts University. Students in this course cover some vital academic material, the definitions, debates, and history of the hipster. Number five, feminist perspectives, politicizing Beyonce. <laughs> Rutgers University. Again, we're not talking about like some backwater, you know, whatever, like private Rutgers University. Beyonce is considered queen on many college campuses, and this class is no exception. By pairing the pop stars, songs, and music videos with writers like Sojourner Truth and Alice Walker, students attempt to answer the question, can Beyonce's music be seen as a blueprint for progressive social change? Number six, Game of Thrones. <laughs> Oh, I, I have a. And this I, is this is in my backyard, University of Virginia. <laughs> I should take that one. I would ace it. I, I I've got a really quick story for you. When I went to England, yeah, one of the castles that I got to see. It's probably my favorite aspect of the trip, other than the graduation itself, where I got my master's. Was when I went to see Warwick Castle yeah. in the middle of England. And Warwick Castle is like one of the most well-preserved castles in England. Warwick Castle was the home of of two of the most famous lords in English history, and one of them was Richard Neville. Richard Neville played a critical role in the Wars of the Roses, um, so much so that he ended up getting the nickname the Kingmaker because he he was responsible for the for deposing and bringing to the throne two separate kings, uh, Henry the Sixth and Edward the Fourth. Well, Neville is actually the inspiration for Walder Frey. Um, wow! <laughs> so I just I thought that was a, a, a just just a really funny. It, it wasn't, but I... thank you. Okay. No <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number seven, tree climbing from Cornell University. Actually, this is the first one I, I've looked at where it's like, okay, that actually might be a marketable, marketable skill if you wanted to uh, get into that industry. Uh, number eight, you can take a class on stupidity from <laughs> Occidental College. Students in this course learn to accept the normalcy of stupidity and are taught that it is the double, wait, it is the double of intelligence rather than its opposite. How fascinating that there is a college uh, course on stupidity where students learn to accept the normalcy of it. That seems strangely appropriate. All right, sh scroll down some more. When I went a couple more of these. Um, nine, surviving the coming zombie apocalypse, disasters, catastrophes, and human behavior at Michigan State University. Again, I'm going to give them a pass on that one because of higher ed. Right. This is one of those. You remember when John Stewart said, you know, we owe a great debt of science for helping to solve a problem that science probably created when he was talking about a, a certain nondescript flu coming out of China. Surviving the coming zombie apocalypse at Michigan State University. This might be a course that we owe a huge debt of gratitude 
um, in order to help us survive something that the university system helped cause. <laughs> I remember the quote, the, the arc of history is long, Yeah, but, but it bends towards zombie, zombie apocalypse. apocalypse. Number 10, the art of walking by Center College. You may think there's nothing more to walking than putting one foot in front of the other, but Professor Ken Keffer would disagree. He instructs students in the art and experience of walking, more specifically observing the world so that you'll never be bored while taking a walk. This is this is something that if, if you've taken out a second mortgage to put your send your kids to Center College. Number 11, philosophy and Star Trek at Georgetown University. Again, those are not cheap courses. Uh, how to watch television, Montclair College. Uh, number 13, oh, look at chicken. Embracing distraction is a way of knowing. Belmont University. Wow. I, I will say that's another one that is strangely appropriate uh, given what we're talking about here today. So these are, these are some of the most ridiculous courses that you can take. Um, go ahead and look at the next article because I, I want you to understand that it doesn't stop there. All right. Top American universities, including Harvard and Yale, accused of peddling woke hysteria by charging thousands of dollars for politically charged diversity, equity, and inclusion courses that are run by activists. Harvard charges $12,400 for an online DEI course, and Penn's is nearly $10,000. Courses cover ideas like microaggression, unconscious bias, and privilege. Critics told DailyMail.com such courses are really, are really run by activists rather than truth-seeking academics, and institutions are cashing out on woke hysteria. No kidding. You, you don't you don't say what's the next uh, article there you go all right this one uh, oh scroll up a little bit okay yeah this is something I wanted to talk about these are the so again just remember that the universities that are coming to me as a legislator begging for more of your tax dollars that they're just you know delegate Freitas if we want to keep tuition affordable for our school on the art of walking, right, for our classes on Game of Thrones at, at University of Virginia, we're going to need the taxpayers to pony up hundreds of millions of dollars. Keep in mind, like the budget and the, the Virginia budget that I voted no on had hundreds of millions of dollars for higher education in there, all right? 15 universities with the biggest endowments, all right? That's, that's, that means the amount of money that they're just sitting there collecting interest that, you know, that they can use to, to help run operations and everything else. Harvard University, 50 billion. Yale University, 41 billion. Stanford University, 36 billion. Princeton University, 35 billion. MIT, 24 billion. University of Pennsylvania, 20 billion. Texas A&M, 17 billion. University of Notre Dame, 17 billion. University of Michigan Ann Arbor, 17 billion. Duke University, 12 billion. Washington Lewis or Washington University in St. Louis, 12 billion. Emory University, 11 billion. Vanderbilt University, 10 billion. University of Virginia, 9 billion. Cornell University, 9 billion. I want you to remember this the next time you hear about those, those poor universities and that how we need to invest more in higher education because those endowments, those endowments largely came from donors. Okay. So un understand something. If maybe you went to a university and maybe you're very, very proud of that university and it's alma mater. Maybe you're very proud of the, the experience that you had when you went there. Maybe you think that the education that you received was just spot on and maybe you met your wife there and it has special emotional, um, you know, feelings for you as well. That, that's all fine and good. If you're not paying attention to what the university you attended to is actually doing with its students today and, and you're still just giving them hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of dollars for their endowments or for new facilities or for new buildings. And you're not asking very important questions about how they're spending the money or how they're using it or what they're actually teaching. You're part of the problem. And I'm sorry to put it that way, 
but it's true. One of the biggest issues that we have right now is, is not, it's not even all the public funds that get taken from people and sent to these universities. It, it's people that are privately donating these universities. I got to ask the question it, because if you're someone that you got out of that university and you started a business or, or you really, you really hit it bid by working, they are teaching the kids that they send there that you're the bad guy. They will sit there and gladly take your money with a smile on their face and then teach their students that you're the enemy and you're an oppressor and you need to be taken out. Just keep that in mind before you write one more check to them as alumni. Last thing I want to say, that's some of the most ridiculous stuff that, that I find frustrating, but I really want to get next into some of the things that we're actually seeing on these, these campuses. Go ahead. Um, I want you to skip ahead a couple of, uh, couple of articles here. In fact, the, the one I want to go to Hamilton is this one. Um, it's, it was the last one on the line there. I think take a look at that one. Uh, no, not that one. Sorry. We'll find it here. There we go. American universities have finally hit the wall. Let's hope so. Higher education faces a real existential danger and recent outrage. Is this the moment of reckoning for academia finally at hand? Go ahead and scroll down because I want you. To, I want to talk about some of the things that this article addresses. The ground is still shifting rapidly beneath the elite universities. Once generous donors have rescinded almost a billion dollars in donations, and this may be only the beginning after the disastrous performance of several Ivy League presidents in a recent congressional hearing. The University of Pennsylvania's president, Liz uh, McGill, has already been forced to resign, and Harvard's Claude Gay, who was facing charges of plagiarism, is likely they said likely next she didn't she's staying on the house committee on education and the workforce has announced a full investigation of harvard mit and upenn which could expand to other schools it seems that disgust with elite universities is felt almost universally as everyone from billionaire hedge funders like bill ackman to grandstanding politicians uh, to elon musk pile on but it's important to remember that the most significant problems with academia have existed for decades and permeate nearly all universities elite or not in the u.s the recent extreme political zealotry of ivory league campuses should be no surprise to anyone who has spent even a modicum of time at one of these schools, much less so if one has attended a class there. The only surprise in all of this is that it has taken so long for donors to notice there is something seriously, alarmingly amiss at modern American universities. Scroll down a little bit more because I want to read this last part. Even putting aside the current Israel-Palestine controversy, academia has over the past several decades undergone a profound transformation from a classical institution of learning to a laboratory for all manner of woke political activism and extremism. And here's what needs to be understood. Kristen mentioned that that I said, and, and, I, and I kind of hesitated on whether or not I was going to bring this up, uh, on whether or not, he mentioned that I said I could see us having another Holocaust within our lifetime. Um, and, and that's, that's going to be the, that's going to be the controversial thing that gets this, this, this episode demonetized, but I, I think it needs to be said. Why do I say that? Do, do I think it's going to look the same way the last one looked? Not necessarily, but when I see the number of protests taking place in the West, and when I see academia, who, if you misgender someone at Harvard, if you dead name someone at, at Princeton, you're going to get in trouble for it. Um, there, there's not going to be any question. H had they asked any of these questions on, are, are you allowed to talk about the genocide of, you know, whatever protected class, the answer would have immediately been absolutely not. Our, our university through our DEI programs takes every opportunity that we possibly can to ensure an environment where everyone feels safe. But when they asked, do you consider it a violation of your student policy to call for the genocide of Jews? They sat there and went through a bunch of legalese. 
Now, part of the reason why they're doing this is because there's serious questions with respect to differentiation between Zionism and anti-Semitism or being anti-Zionist or anti-Semitic. And, and, I, and I get it. There can be distinctions there. The problem is, is that we're way past that. We're not, we're not talking about students saying, I want an independent Palestinian state or students saying, I don't like the Israeli government. We're talking about rally after rally where they're saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. There's only one thing that can mean, and that is the, that is the destruction of the Jewish state. Now, they will argue that, well, we're not saying that the Jewish people need to be killed. We're just saying that the Jewish state should not exist in the Levant. Well, the question is, is okay, where should it exist? Because that's the only place that makes historical sense. And, and, and oh, by the way, the same people that are claiming that Israel is an apartheid state or a genocide state, if you're going to use the, the reasoning that these protesters do in order to come to that conclusion, then you would have to come to the conclusion that just about every Arab Muslim state is therefore an apartheid and genocide state when it comes to their treatment of Jews living with their own borders. So if anybody's wondering why this is, this is such a problem, and, and I had a good friend in politics make a comment on Twitter where I messaged him and I said, I'm going to be honest, I love you, man, but I can't believe you said that. Because when I'm watching people that, that in all of the respects, seem to be fairly logical, that are essentially saying, we don't need to worry about any of this. It's none of our business. Now, am I saying that the United States should go to war to support Israel? No, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that the United States has a legal or constitutional obligation to do any of that. I'm not. But I do think that Israel has a right to exist as a nation state. And I'm wanting, I'm watching lines be blurred now that are pretty dangerous. And people will look at this and be like, well, Nick, you're, you're getting caught up in, in, a, in an argument that has nothing to do with the United States. No, hear me out, because this, this part is important. Israel is just a catalyst for something that is far bigger that is going on right now within Western academia. And the reason why Israel is at the forefront of this overall discussion about wokeness, about critical theory, about this idea of oppressor and oppressed is because people are still alive who went through the Holocaust, right? The, the whole never again, never again, never again. We would never allow something like that to happen. Well, it, it, didn't, it didn't happen by accident. It happened because certain conditions were there and then a catalyst was made available to allow the Nazi regime to get away with it. But prior to that, there had been pogroms against the Jewish people all over the country. There had been active and systemic discrimination against Jews. And, and I realize that Jews are not the only people that have been discriminated against, but the an attempt for systematic annihilation, that was pretty unique. There's been other people that have gone through that, but that was pretty unique in world history. The degree to the scope with which it took place. And what I find fascinating is that a bunch of Western elites and academics who typically you would expect to look at a situation like this and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe after happened with October 7th, that was horrible, that was horrific. But instead, you had college professors getting up saying, this is what decolonization looks like. You notice it wasn't just free Palestine. It was, this is what decolonization looks like. That is straight out of critical theory. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. You think the Israelis are the only ones that these people see as colonizers? You think that's it? You think it stops there. You, you think if Palestine was free from the river to the sea, 
which again is a direct call for the destruction of the, the Jewish state. If you think that was accomplished, do you think it would stop there? Do you think that's the only oppressor they're after? I can promise you it isn't. And the fact that this has manifested itself around this issue should be something that Americans look at a lot more seriously. Regardless of of what you feel about the current government in Israel, regardless of what you feel about whether or not the United States military or the United States taxpayer should be on the hook to support Israel, regardless of what you think about that, I want you to look at the rhetoric coming out of these protests. I want you to look at the rhetoric coming out of Western academia. I want you to look at the rhetoric coming out of college professors and deans and presidents of, of Ivy League universities and their complete unwillingness to address what's going on within their college campuses. What you saw in that testimony was admission from the presidents of some of the most prestigious universities in the United States, essentially saying that when it came to certain groups that fall within the oppressor category, the same rules don't apply. Because they're oppressors, of course. They didn't come out and say that. Nope, they gave you a big runaround and a bunch of legalese on why... Well, in this particular situation, because of the political nuance, and really, do you, do you think they would have given you that runaround if somebody had said it about any other group, which technically falls within the oppressed class or the marginalized class or the minority class? Would they have said it? Would they have beat around the bush? Would they have given you a, a long explanation which no one could quite understand what it actually means? No, they wouldn't have done any of that. And what you need to understand is that they won't do it for you either. What's happening in our university campuses is not just expensive. It's not just politically motivated. It's not just ridiculous. What's going on within our university campuses right now is dangerous. Because this whole idea that I should be able to use political violence against the people I don't like because they're evil and I'm good. They're an oppressor and I'm oppressed. That idea is catching on. That idea is catching on among an ever-increasing portion of the student body. And it is having an influence on the way that they process reality. And it is having an influence on what they think is acceptable behavior. I've said this once and I'll say it again. When they say you disagreeing with them on trans ideology is you engaging in violence against them, they're not just saying that to shut you up. They're saying it to be able to provide them moral grounds for using violence against you. That is where this ideology leads. That is where critical theory leads. And it is the dominant underlying philosophy of a lot of what is going on within our college campuses right now, and you are paying for it. I don't mean as a student. I don't mean as a donor. I don't even mean as a parent. You're paying for it as a taxpayer. And the few people that are going to get up whether it be in Virginia during the legislative session, whether it be in Congress, and say, enough is enough. We're not going to subsidize the destruction of our own civilization on institutions of higher education that can't come out and say, yeah, you're not allowed to preach genocide against a particular people group. We're not doing it anymore. We're not subsidizing it. And the moment you say you're not going to subsidize it with tax dollars anymore, you know what they're going to say? They're going to say, oh, you're trying to ban free speech. Isn't that amazing? 
Isn't it amazing how when we want to say something they don't like, they are perfectly fine with banning our speech. When we don't want to pay for something they want to say, that's when we're banning speech against them. Isn't that an interesting distinction? And it's because they are trying to create moral equivalency. That is what all this is about, creating moral equivalency so that eventually you can first be ostracized, then you can be fired, then you can be jailed, and I think you can conclude what happens after that. Because you're either going to get on board or you're going to be punished. And that is the sort of mindset that is being fostered in a lot of college courses all over this country, and again, you're forced to pay for it. And if you're not asking your legislator how they vote on these budgets, how they look at these budget amendments, if you're not asking them whether or not they're going to pull back and they're going to stand up and they're actually going to say, no more, not on my dime. If the universities would like to use their $50 billion endowment, well, then they can leave that between them and their donors. If they want to raise tuition, good. They can leave that between them and the students. But no more taking money by force through taxes in order to fund educational institutions who at best are increasingly providing shoddy degrees which can't pay for themselves and at worst fostering an ideology within our students which is increasingly convincing them that violence is the appropriate way for them to solve problems as long as they're attacking someone they've identified as a, quote, oppressor. And you can be an oppressor by something as simple as your skin color. So, what can we do about it? Well, politically, I've already given you a suggestion, and that is start calling your local representatives and telling them that you expect them to stand up against this, that you're no longer willing to put up with just this, uh, this idea and this mindset that as long as it's for, quote, higher education, well, then, of course, take more of my money. Tell them you want to see results. Tell them that you want to see pushback against some of these radical ideologies. And again, I am fine with freedom of speech. You want to go speak free? Go speak freely. But it's amazing to me that the same people that would tell us that we are to be punished and ostracized if we say something they don't like find it ridiculous and absurd and oppressive if we don't want to pay for them to tell everybody that we're oppressors. Let me, let me get this straight. I have to pay for the privilege of you turning my children against me? I don't think so. That doesn't happen anymore. And you need to demand that of your legislators. You need to demand that of your representatives. Because in, in no other situation do you see this. We don't, we don't carry bills. For instance, I'm very pro-Second Amendment. I don't carry bills to give tax dollars to the NRA. Why? Because it's not appropriate. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't carry bills to give tax dollars to the Heritage Foundation or to Cato Institute. Why? Because it's not appropriate. And I'm tired of being told that I have to give tax dollars to organizations which have become so ideologically captured and that are actively working against things that I believe and care about. The other thing that you can do, and this part I think is really important, if you're a business owner, stop giving deference to somebody simply because they have a degree. Now, don't get me wrong. If they went to a good school and they are a great student and they, can, they have proven that they can do that job, fine. But this idea that we are increasingly being told that, no, no, you just, you got to hire, you got to have that degree. You got to have that degree. Education has become easier, not harder. And here's how I know. I have received far more education on my own from going to the litany of free resources that are now available 
in order to be able to study things, in order to be able to watch people actually doing things, in order to be able to get valuable capabilities and skill sets from people that are not telling me they know how to do it, people that either have done it or are currently doing it and showing me how to do it. Education has become easier, not harder. Education has only become harder and more expensive in one place, the university system and any sort of educational institution that the government controls. The, The amount of things you can learn on the Khan Academy for next to nothing is incredible. The amount of things you can learn on Skillshare, the amount of things you can learn just going on YouTube and looking up people and doing a very, very basic check for the sort of reviews and seeing whether or not this person actually knows what they're talking about. And to learn from that is absolutely incredible. It has never been easier or cheaper to gain more knowledge. Now, is there a lot of bad information out there as well? Absolutely. And you know what? A lot of it comes from the university. So I'm sick of hearing that they're the ones that are supposed to be the vetting process for what information is good or bad. The vetting process for information is, does it work? Does it reflect reality? Do I now have a skill set from having attended this course or watching this video or not? So start to look from the business perspective, start to reward people with capabilities and experience. If you're a parent, I know that there's an enormous amount of pressure to be able to tell people my kids are going to this university or my kids are going to that university. There's an enormous amount of pressure. I know there is. And I'm not telling you to not help your kids go to university if that's what they actually need to do for their career set or if it's something that they really want to do. I am telling you to be very, very careful about what you pay for at the university that they're going to. It, it's, you can't just assume that it's going to be okay. And you need to be properly equipping your kids to be able to go into that environment so they don't come out the other end thinking that everything that you taught them just puts them in an oppressor category. They have to be, they have to be able to go into that intellectually aware and capable of being able to defend the things, know what they believe, defend it, and be able to defend it academically and intellectually. But, but ultimately what this is about is just we need to stop assuming. <laughs> we need to stop assuming that it, it's just going to be okay if we send our kids off to college. We've done our bit, and now they're going off to college, and, and everything's going to be okay because they'll have that degree. Because the bottom line is, is that you might be putting your child, you might be putting your student into a situation that is highly detrimental for them, that is going to be confusing, that is going to cause them to not question everything in, in, a, in a good and positive way where they're engaging in rigorous critical thinking, but rather questioning everything that they ever thought they knew about their identity. Not based off of facts or evidence, but based off of consensus within an ideologically captured institution. So I would just encourage you to avail yourself because more and more we're seeing within the private sector, we're seeing within the marketplace More and more companies coming back and going, I'm not doing this anymore. The old method, the old processes don't work. I need people who are skilled and competent with good work ethic. And if that comes with a degree, great. And if it doesn't, I don't really care anymore. Nope. Because even if they come with competence, it may be the thing that they're most competent in being is an activist. And a competent activist within your workplace can do more damage within your business than any of your free market competition can. Good point. And it's important to keep that into consideration because that's the world we're occupying now. So let me wrap this up. Did you have a... uh, I just wanted to make one point. Yeah. You know, you said something about parents taking pride in where their kids are going to go to school. I just, I want to point out that the pride that if you're a parent with a child that's about to go to college, the pride that you have in where they go to school and what it means to tell your friends and family that they're going to school at X place 
isn't going to mean any mean anything to your student 10 years from now when they realize they lack the skills they need to level up in their career. And in 10 years, where they went to school doesn't really matter to them because at that point they have to put food on the table. They have to build the confidence whether they got it in college or not. And uh, I, I think a lot of that pride the parents have in where their kids go to school can, like you said, Nick, be very detrimental a lot of times. It's, it's not going to matter to you as a parent to brag about where your kid went to school if the reason why you can't visit them on Christmas is because of what they learned in that university. You said that a lot better than I did. Um, <laughs> last uh, point here. Uh, obviously, we've had some technical difficulties, folks. I apologize for that. We've had power issues and, and internet issues and computer issues today, and we've had to separate the streams a little bit. Uh, we got a lot of super chats in the previous stream that, unfortunately, I cannot see at this point to uh, to read off and answer. I tried to go back to see if we could find them. I wasn't able to. Uh, so I want to say thank you to everyone who did send a super chat in the last stream, and uh, we appreciate it. Sorry, we can't address them during this stream. Yeah. Okay. You know, I, I will say as we're we're moving to the conclusion here that this is probably a topic that we're going to bring up and more in the future, I imagine, because in some ways we've only actually scratched the surface of of the crisis that is, you know, <laughs> gripping higher education right now. Nick, yeah. you said that... Uh, Oh, I thought that you were pointing to... Oh, no, and it was... Darth Looper said, do you have any examples of a university teaching a subject that is inherently untrue? I have examples of universities teaching subjects where they say there is no truth. So the fact that you're even bringing up truth as, as an example or as a standard for what should be taught in a university, I find fascinating because universities don't seem to agree with that. And it's not that activist is a bad word. It's the sort of activism that you're engaging in. And I will tell you this much. If you're going into a job and you're paid to do a particular job, yes, if they're doing something violent and horrible and exploitive, sure, that could be the, that could be a good call for an activist to step up and do something. But that's not what we're seeing in a lot of these instances. What we're seeing is somebody coming in with this idea that, again, with this new standard of equity, which generally ends up translating into equality of outcomes, and then working to destroy, sue, or subvert the very organizations, the very practices, which made the company to, which made the company successful in the first place and provided people thousands of jobs. So that, that's what I'm talking about. Um, all right, listen, I know we've been on here for a while. And again, a lot of technical difficulties, so I apologize for that. There's some of that we control and a lot of it that we don't. We certainly don't control when the power goes out. Um, so I appreciate Hamilton trying to get everything up on board. That and, threw us off a little bit, but oh you know what? I, th I think that you had some, some really good monologues here in this episode and, you know, you're speaking as a legislator, right? I, I really do think that it's time for like conservatives to start speaking out to their elected officials and being like, why are we funding the opposition? Like you, you want to know why we, we lose over and over and over again, because we, you know, Javier Malay actually said this best yeah. when he was running for president in Argentina. And he said, the only way that we win is if we force them into a fair fight. Yep. It is not a fair fight when we are funding our political opponents, our ideal, not even just our political opponents, our ideological opponents. We're funding them. We're, we're giving them free money taken from us, from, from, from conservatives, from people that live in conservative districts, Republican We're office holders. Working people. Yeah. Republican politicians vote to forcefully confiscate money from their conservative constituents 
hardworking, some of them blue collar constituents that didn't even go to college. They're they're voting to to confiscate their money and give it to universities, state funded universities that what do they do? Do they churn out more, you know, you know, red, white and blue patriotic Americans that believe in free markets and individual liberty and and, you know, believe in some sort of like social norms that don't lead us into the zombie apocalypse. No, they're 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 churning out the exact opposite. They're churning out a bunch of woke idiots who can't do any sort of critical thinking, believe that Western civilization is evil and needs to be tearn, uh, torn down and have have this this black and white oppressor versus oppressive mentality that quite frankly leads you straight to genocide. We're voting to give them money to indoctrinate people into becoming cultural Marxists and then we're wondering why on earth our country's going to hell. Like That's the reason why, because we're not in a fair fight. If, if, if it was an actual fair fight, here's what would be happening. We would be shutting off the flow of taxpayer money to universities and saying, great, if you want to have a private university, go ahead no. and do that. But you should not be able to compel my constituents to fund your ideology being propagated throughout the masses. Why on earth are we funding the cathedral? It's bad enough that it exists in the first place. It's even worse that it's being subsidized with taxpayer money. Yeah. Name me one instance where the left compels their base to fork over money for the propagation of conservative values. Is there any? There's, I, can't there, I can't think of how much money do students <laughs> they, for life get? They might argue. They might argue the military. <laughs> no, but but even the military. Yeah. I mean, let, let's be honest. Even the military doesn't necessarily push conservative. Values. Oh no, no, no. In fact, in, increasingly, it's becoming the opposite. But. Well, no, I, I think, and I, and I, I did think when he said that that was one of the best ways to, to summarize what I'm, what I'm looking for here. I'm not looking for people to, to turn the tables in such a way where it's like, okay, fine, then we're going to control the, the political mechanisms of power and we're going to steal liberals money and we're going to give it to you know, those sort of educational and activist organizations, which, you know, are, are in line with us. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I want you to be able to spend your money the way that you want. I want you to be able to make the decisions that you want to be able to make. And I want you to deal with the consequences of your actions. And if you want help because you made a mistake, I don't mind you asking. I have a real problem with you demanding through elected officials and then telling me I mean if I don't want to hand it over to you. Because I think at that point, what we do is we're actually incentivizing a whole host of really, really bad decisions long term. And that's part of what's gone on within academia right now. They are protected from market forces because they can take your money through the officials that you elect. That's what it comes down to. They don't got to ask you for your money. They can take it. And it's about time we told them that if they're going to go ahead and turn their institutions into ideological hotbeds where they are essentially crapping on half the country, well, they can do it without our money. And I think that's a pretty fair position to take. Can I make uh, one more announcement? Yeah. Are you? Is that okay? You no, go for it. Okay. Uh, earlier, uh, when we were streaming at 12, we actually had our thousandth order come through to the store. Oh, wow. Which is awesome. That is. Uh, today is the cutoff for any packages that are, any orders that are submitted today will arrive by Christmas. Now, um, if you can, if you are listening to the stream right now or listening to, on this on audio, and you put in an order before 11.59 p.m. tonight and put MTA in the note section at, at, uh, when you order, 
we will make sure and verify that your order gets shipped out tomorrow. Uh, so you can go to shop.nickjfreitas.com or treadaroundandfindout.com, submit an order, put MTA in the notes section, and I'll make sure that our warehouse manager sees those and gets those shipped out in time to arrive by Christmas. Yeah, we're actually, I mean, we, we love the group that we're working with on this. It's actually a, a localized group. That way we can have good interaction with the warehouse manager, with the, the screen printers, with all of that. We, we did that on purpose because we wanted to make sure that if, if we got into this and we were actually, you know, providing products that they would be good products and they would get you on time. And so we really are trying to do our best to make sure that happens. And, and we really appreciate everyone that has. Yeah. Ordered. And for anybody who's put in an order to the store and it hasn't shipped yet, uh, the challenge that we've had is actually purchasing the correct uh, styrofoam containers for the mugs so that they don't break during shipping. And so there was actually an order of 1,900 styrofoam packages that arrived at the warehouse just a few hours ago. And so if your order is behind and hasn't shipped yet, they're going to be shipping out today and tomorrow. Uh, but we're, again, just so appreciative of everybody that has purchased from us that are going to be repping the tread around and find out uh, merchandise and that logo. And so uh, thank you to everyone. All right. Well, once again, thank you very much for joining us. We're very happy to have uh, Christian back. I'm so happy that on Christian's return from receiving his master's degree in history, we could dedicate an entire episode to going after higher ed. <laughs> <laughs> we, but don't worry, higher ed. We're sending him. We, we keep sending him to infiltrate you to learn more. <laughs> but no, listen, hey, I, I just to sum up. Once again, the problem is not the idea of higher education or the idea of a university system or the idea of intellectualism. I want to reject any anybody that, that seems to think that's the problem. The, the problem is the sort of capture that we see going on right now, and a lot of it has to do with government interference into this. Like I said, when you, when you actually have organizations and institutions which get to provide products and services in the marketplace and people get to choose whether or not they want to use them based off of voluntary cooperation and, and, and mutual benefit, that's fine. I'm not trying to ban anybody from saying the things that they want to say, but I got a real problem when you're forcing me to subsidize it, especially when I think it's overall detrimental to the country, to the economy, and to a lot of the things that we believe and hold dear. So once again, thank you much, very much for joining this episode. Thank you to Good Ranchers. Again, go to goodranchers.com, type in promo code Nick. You sign up for one of the subscriptions, you're going to get a really good ham for free with your subscription. So go ahead and consider doing all of that because again, Christmas is uh, coming up. We still got New Year's Eve. We got all that stuff that you, you might want a really huge delivery ham with and uh, good ranchers is going to deliver so once again thank you for joining us and we will see you next episode